All right, this is Chance the Gaming Podcast, episode 112, and we hope you are happy to listen to us. I sent out literally hundreds of postcards advertising uh, our podcast all over the Southeast. Uh, if you picked us up in a bar or gaming store or whatever, you know, hopefully you're listening to us and you like what you have. I'm Adam Chance, and with me always is Richard and Roy. Good evening, everyone. This is Rich. Hi, I'm Roy. I live in Holland, Michigan, which is on the west coast of Michigan. What lake is that next to? Uh, lake Michigan. Okay, yeah, that should be obvious. Yep. But I live in the south, so, you know. <laughs> anyway, uh, we always start out with, like, what you're playing. What, what, what did we play lately? And we talk about what we did. And uh, myself, I managed to get in a game of Infinity... At, uh, I went to MechaCon, which is an anime convention in Louisiana. My family and I have been going for about, this is our third or fourth year that we've been going. And it's something that my kids really enjoy. However, there really isn't much tabletop gaming. So I kind of put feelers out about a month ahead of time and uh, found some people that would pick me up and take me to a place to game. And we ended up gaming at Bad Wolf Grill and Bar. And I've got to say, I really, really dig this place. This is a quote-unquote nerd lair, bar, <laughs> grill, and game shop. It When you walk in, it absolutely looks like a dive bar. That's their aesthetic they're going for. And uh, they have these pool tables, and they have these nice things that they put down over it where we could play. I got in there for us to play Infinity, and the guys next to us were playing 6mm uh, American Civil War. So I really, really dug that. And the tacos I ate were excellent. I, and I drank all afternoon there and ended up um, spending about 30 bucks. So, so this I, had nothing to do with the con. This was just a local was, gaming place. Yes, this was outside of the con. I actually poked around there and they had some role playing going on. And I, I have to say I'm a little disappointed with how unorganized the con is with its tabletop gaming. There was some role playing. There was Seventh Sea. Uh, there was Dungeons and Dragons, and like one more had sessions going on. But it was kind of difficult to, you know, see what, when, and where these things were happening. And uh, so, yeah. I couldn't find that, so I ended up going outside the con, driving about 10, 15 minutes away to to uh, Bad Wolf and uh, playing over there. So yeah, other than that, my old I did an old school anime panel at like 9 p.m. and made it 18 plus, and it was it went over really really well, <laughs> even though they stopped me in the middle of doing it to check IDs for the uh, the audience, which was pretty funny. I tried to get up a, a, a fuck the police chant, you know, going, or damn the man, you know, because they were trying to come after us. As, as they were IDing everyone? Yes, yes. <laughs> yeah, so, but anyway. So, yeah, other than that, it went great. Uh, I really feel a lot better about, this is about my third time to play Infinity, and the guy that was teaching me really knew what he was doing, and I feel a lot better in, like, how to play it. Yeah. Although, I don't know if I could ever be the guy that teaches anything, but yeah. One really neat thing about it as a miniature game is their slogan is, quote-unquote, it's always your turn. 
So you have reactive fire. Anytime somebody gets wanders into your line of sight, you can shoot at them. So that's that's pretty. Oh, neat. like a like an Overwatch kind of thing. Absolutely, yeah. Like yeah, Overwatch. Okay. So yeah. So that was really cool. So uh, anyway, Rich, you played D Day at Peleu again. Yeah, I played it a couple more times, actually. The more I play it, the more I like this game. It's uh, starting to get, you know, you play a game a few times and you, you start to, you don't have to go back to the rule book quite as much and starts to make more sense. And, you know, even to the point where some of the rules that I was missing made the game harder for me. But it's just it's just a really, really good game. And I'm liking it so much that I like the system and I want to. I'd like to try some of the other games, but it's a solitaire-only game. The board is just a big map of the island, Peleliu, in the middle of the Pacific, and you play the the Marines invading the island. The uh, the AI is basically there are preset positions that the Japanese occupy. Uh, all the counters, the enemy counters, are uh, face down, so you don't know what's in a position. And you can take fire from a position even before you know what's in there. In fact, it's it's worse if you haven't revealed the position. But they reinforce, they bring their tanks down, they go into close combat with you. Uh, it's just it's just a really really good game. There are a couple others in the system. There's one uh, Tarawa. There's one at Omaha Beach, and there's another one that's coming out soon. I can't remember which one, but I think there's three in the system already, and a fourth one announced. So. Uh, yeah, if you like solitaire war games, this is again the more I play it, the more I like it. So, and this comes from Decision Games. Yes, yeah, that is correct. All right, cool. What else have you been playing? So I played Ottoman Sunset, which I've had for a while, and I I haven't played it for a while. Have you guys ever heard of the States of Siege games? I have no, not. Sure. It's by it's by Victory Point Games, I think. Um, it's this whole series called States of Siege, and it's kind of a it's kind of a tower defense kind of thing in a way because you have enemies coming at you from different directions. You have to decide where you want to push back, and you know you never have enough actions to stop them all coming in. And uh, sort of the the themes of the games is you're doomed. You know how how long can you hold off? And this one in particular is is the fall of the Ottoman Empire in World War One. So um, again, I haven't played it in a while. And for whatever reason, I just got it back out, mostly because it was a nice day outside, and this is a small footprint game that I can sit on my table and just play it on the front porch. And I just I forgot how much fun this game can be. So uh, I lost. I probably, probably did better than I ever have in this game before. You win if you make it through the entire deck of cards. And I was close, and the, uh, you know, the British... Uh, sail their ships up the the narrows and evaded all my minefields and everything and destroyed me but it's uh it's a very simple game it's you know the rule book's probably only maybe 12 pages or so and they're like little half size pages it's a small footprint game it's a pretty simple game there's actually another one that goes with it called Habsburg Eclipse that I do not own but you can actually put them both together and play you know all of the you know the the allied powers, the central powers of World War One together. So I'd like to get that sometime just to see that one. But again, it's it's a simple game, takes maybe half an hour to play, small footprint, Ottoman Sunset, highly recommended. So those were both solitaire games. I don't play completely solitaire games because I also spent the entire weekend playing my favorite game, which we've talked about quite a bit, Advanced Squad Leader. 
the uh, the St. Louis Advanced Squad Later Tournament was here in town this weekend. It's always, I think it's always like the last weekend of July, and this is my second year going to it. Um, and I get to I get to play six games of ASL this weekend. Uh, I won one of them, so I was happy to win that one, and uh, just had a great great time. Uh, the more I play ASL, the more the less I want to play anything else, to be honest. Um, you know, if if I had an opponent and I could play ASL every single night, I would. And I think I would honestly trade every other game I had if that was a possibility for me. So it's just I like the game that much. Now, yeah. Rich, you had a big uh, uh, a blog post on the website there at chanceofgaming.com. Yeah, right? I did. I, I just I okay. wrote up a summary of just my entire weekend, all six games that I played. Uh, just a quick little summary, not full after action reports. Although I did do that for one of my games, and that's I think that's on my website, stlwargamers.com. Maybe I'll cross post that one as well. But yeah, so quick summary of all six games and just who I played against. Um, one thing that I thought was really cool is there's a blogger out there. Um, he he does after action reports of his weekly asl games it's a guy online he's known as grumble jones and as i sat down to play my i think it was my second game of the weekend another guy that was friends with both of us came up to me he goes you know you're about to play grumble jones right i'm like no that's really cool i had no idea (laughs) you know i i only knew him as grumble jones and now i know grumble jones as well yeah so there is actually some historical guy named grumble jones i think he's from the civil war so that's where he takes his name from but yeah if you look up grumble jones advanced squad later you'll see he does a weekly post because he plays uh this guy and um he Scott Grumble Jones lives in Illinois, and this friend of his lives in Kansas City, and they play every single Saturday together. So, and he writes up uh-huh. really good after-action reports. There's been quite a few where I've wanted to play a scenario, and I've looked up and just saw how it went for him. So, it was fun. I got to play. My first one was against a guy that's won the tournament about three or four times, and he beat me pretty handily. And some guys came up afterwards and were like, yeah, you know, he's one of the best players around. So. Um, it's, it's fun to get to play. I, uh, the way they do it in the ASL tournament is the, the first round, you just play whoever you find, you know, you just flag someone down and say, Hey, let's play a game. And then after that, they start like funneling the winners together and on the contrary, funneling the losers together as well. So mm-hmm. on Sunday morning at that point, I was 0 and 4 in the tournament and I played another guy that was 0 and 4 in the tournament and I, I actually won that game. So. Uh, it is nice because, uh, you know, you get a championship of sorts because on Sunday morning, the two guys that have been playing the best are going to end up playing each other. And in this case, the one guy that won, his name's Randy, he played so well that even if he had lost Sunday, he would have still won the tournament because he ended up – he played five games and that the people that he beat were in second, third, fourth, fifth, and sixth place, which is just amazing. He, he absolutely played the gauntlet and won them all. So he could have missed the entire day Sunday? Yeah, I think if he, I think I heard someone say that if he had lost Sunday, he still had enough points to, uh, to, to win the tournament. Because it's based on, you know, if you beat a good player, it's worth more points than if you beat a bad player. So. Wow. Yeah. Now, okay, I remember I, I've read several after-action reports of, uh, with it and i am fascinated by the fact that you guys got 
28 people to to come to this tournament. Yeah, and they're from all over the country. You know, this was the 21st annual. Last year was the 20th anniversary, the 20th annual. So it's you know kind of a bigger deal. And we had people from Europe come in last year. Yeah, that's so. what I was wondering, like what the demographics were this year. Yeah, I mean, people from all over the country. There was a couple guys from Michigan, um, a, a few people from the Kansas City area. Uh, I played a guy from Memphis, a guy from Central Illinois. So, I mean, you're not talking well, Michigan. That's that's a pretty decent drive. Um, I think we've got, I think we had someone from Texas come too. So, yeah, from from pretty much all over the country. I don't think we had anyone. Well, okay, I take that back. I've got a friend who lives in Miami. Um, and he's he's actually Italian, so he's always going for work. He's going back and forth between Miami and Italy, and he actually came in from Italy to play this weekend. So we did have someone from Europe. Wow. Uh-huh. Yeah. Yeah, like the biggest, I think, 40K tournaments I've ever seen top out around 20. Oh, yeah, and this is – not the biggest. There are bigger ones. I think probably there's there's one called the ASL Open that's huge. There's ASL OK, which is in Cleveland every year. That one is probably twice the size of this one. Uh, the why ASL it, the Texas Why is it, Texas why is it not in uh, Oklahoma? I know. I have no idea what the OK stands for. <laughs> but yeah, I thought that for a while too. I thought ASL OK. Oh, that must be in Oklahoma. No, it's in Cleveland. So I'm sure it means something, but I don't know what it means because I've never been to that one. And there's a big one in Texas too. So we're not the biggest, but you know we're 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 pretty good size. And the guy that runs it, uh, you know, it's a local guy. I I play ASL with him. I've played Twilight Imperium with him as well. And his name's Jim Burris, and he's just he's the nicest guy. He sets all this up. He does all this work, and he barely gets to play. You know, he'll play like if someone just needs an opponent or something. But for the most part. He's just there to make sure everyone else has a good time. and So thank you to him, and thank you for everyone that does the work for it, and I can't wait to do it again next year. Man, that's that's awesome. Yeah, I yeah. It, it, reading it, I was like, dadgummit, I really, really need to like start to work on this. You know, I could do this next year. It's not that far, you know, yeah. of a drive for me. Uh, I would love to know, like, who you played from Memphis, because that's, that's about three hours from me. Uh, his name was Kerry Tyler, I think. Sounds right. I'll have to like look him up. Yeah, he's from Memphis. And, and he's pretty uh, new to the game. He's only played, I think, I think I was his fifth game of ASL that he had ever played, and he beat me, so. Now, okay, tell me how many rounds there were per day. So there's two on Friday, two on Saturday, one on Sunday. But a lot of people, especially on Friday and Saturday – will get in an extra practice game. But the official tournament rounds, two Friday, two Saturday, one Sunday. Okay. Yeah, yeah I, I wondered about Sunday, too, because I know a lot of um, places. I know, like, um, Le Art de Guerre, the uh, ancient rule set, is really big on the Mississippi Gulf Coast. And when they do their tournaments, I think they're doing, like, two rounds Friday, Saturday, and Sunday. And to me, that always kind of sucked because to me, Sunday at a convention, that's the time when I get up and I drive home. So if it was two rounds, that would be kind of eh, kind of disappointing. Like, you know, you don't want to do with that, fool with that. But uh, yeah, one round, especially if it's early in the morning, yeah, that's easy to do. Yeah, there's usually a number of people that 
don't play on Sunday as well, especially like if they're not, you know, in the championship, basically, they'll just they'll leave Sunday morning and they won't play. But, you know, an average round of ASL is three to four hours, but they can go up to six hours sometimes. So, you know, yeah, I played my Sunday match was we got started about 930 in the morning and we finished about two in the afternoon. So that was a long one, but it was we have, were having a great time. It was intense. And there was one game on Saturday I wasn't playing, but they started around noon, and they actually had to call it at 6. So they weren't even done yet at 6. Yeah, Those that, are unusual, but it, it was just it was a big scenario with a lot of units, and it was a long one. I, I, that was a question I had. I wondered if you guys, like, I know, like, 40K will generally try to uh, limit themselves around two hours. Even the ITS, which is the official, unofficial tournament system, tr- is going to uh, chess clocks to speed up things. For, for that would game. be interesting. Yeah. Yeah, There's. I've never seen anything like that, but that certainly would uh, be good. Last year at the tournament, there was a guy that I played, and... Out of all the games I've ever played at ASL, this is the only one I ever played that I did not have a good time. And he was just – he was slower than molasses. He had this old jankety dice tower that he insisted on using. <laughs> he would he would roll the dice and run in his hand. And I'm not exaggerating because I started timing it on my watch for 20 to 30 seconds every single roll. Oof. And if his dice got caught in the dice tower, he would re-roll them and he would spend <laughs> another 30 seconds rolling them around in his hand. And this now, was this is going to roll into game. my. I'm sorry, What's this is going to roll into my my first game <laughs> too, because I have a similar thing that I need to talk about. Yeah, it was Go just ahead. awful, and this was the Saturday night game. And at midnight, you know, I it was still fairly close, but I was like, okay, I'm conceding because I'm not going to do this for three more hours. I mean, at the rate we were going to finish that scenario, it would have been three in the morning. And I thought, you know what? I'm not having fun. I'm not going to do this. Congratulations, you win. You, 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 you bored me out of the game. <laughs> so. Wow. Okay. But that was a one-time thing. But yeah, I never thought of that with the chess clocks. That might be a good idea. Other games that I play, like X-Wing and Star Wars Legion, you know, they have a time limit. And whether the game's done or not, you hit that time limit. You've got to, you know, whatever go on points of ships destroyed or whatever like that. Um, with ASL, it's not like that. In fact, every every scenario in ASL has a maximum number of rounds. Some of them are probably four, five rounds is very common, but some of them go ten rounds. And obviously, if you know that before you go into it, before you start, if you see it's a ten round scenario, you know, get comfortable because you're going to be there a while. Wow, that is interesting. Now I saw like the pictures you you guys did, and I was wondering like, did you get the scenarios ahead of time? Or were they given to you? I noticed they were bound, spiral bound. Yes, they published the list of scenarios ahead of time. So if you want, you can look them all up ahead of time. But then when you get there, you actually get uh, a spiral bound book with the scenario sheets in them. So Okay, so yep. it, it could be anything out of that. that Correct. Of that. They've got okay. it round by round. So they have these are the choices for round one. These are for two, three, three, four, five. And then in the back, there's a list that says any round. All right. Yeah. And uh, I will say I saw actually saw, and I'll post this in the show notes, I saw the picture of Rich, and he does not look like I thought he would. <laughs> oh, did you look at Grumble Jones' blog? 
Yeah, I did, I did. I saw you blog, there. Yeah. <laughs> and I'm like, he's like all baby faced, and I never, I just, I always imagined Rich as like some bearded guy. And so see... that's, and it's funny you say that because I actually just like this weekend decided it's time to grow the beard back out. Usually I shave in the summer, have the beard in the winter, but my beard is gray. So when I have my beard, I look like I'm 60. And I shave my beard, and it's like it takes 30 years off my face. I'm, there's no in the middle for me. I'm either baby-faced or an old man. <laughs> but, yeah, it, it, very baby-faced is how I look. Because I, I just imagined him. I'm like, it's got to be this bearded, you know, older guy. And, yeah, it was just, you know, it's a baby-faced guy that's coming through. Like, yeah. hey, yeah. Well, and, you know, I mean, I'm 45 years old, and I'm one of the youngest ASL players. So, <laughs> ASL, I mean – it's it's such a great game and you know i i don't think mmp does a great job of promoting it obviously they have trouble keeping their starter kits in stock but um you know i hope the game is still around in 20 years because their their constituency is a bunch of old men so there were no ladies at this tournament nope no ladies at this tournament no they, ladies. Are, okay. they are few and far between i've seen pictures of ladies at asl tournaments i've never actually seen a woman play asl there was one kid that was there uh a young man that was i don't know maybe his early 20s but his father was there also and you can tell they played together okay. i i will say <laughs> there is a um there's a gal on twitter that is a board game personality katie i cannot think of her name um anyway she she plays asl and so i you know i found that fascinating which she i haven't been following katie at aidley um she's from the uk and uh i recently started following her and she posted something about asl and i was like oh is this your first time she's like no i'm a regular player i'm like you know just like wow okay i you know you don't to me women uh, war gamers are, are very rare, especially like women, uh, miniature, historical miniature gamers, in my experience, are rare. So it's really neat to see. So yeah. I'm curious. I've tried to get my daughters into it. They don't seem interested. <laughs> uh, again, to me, uh, ASL is so attractive because it, it is a very small map that yep. you, can, you can do. There is a lot of intense strategy going on on a very small map, and that that's what's so attractive to me. So. Yeah. All right, uh, Roy, uh, you've been playing Gloomhaven? Gloomhaven, yeah. I finally got to play some of this. Um, so I'd been kind of interested in it, and uh, we were going to do some D&D plan, but we didn't have a full group. So uh, somebody had Gloomhaven, had not gotten it out of the box yet, so it was still in the shrink, and uh, set that up, and uh, had a good time. But there was, you know, uh, Rich, you were talking previously about the uh, guy that took forever to, to take <laughs> yeah. his turn. Yeah. The, the person whose, whose game it was just took forever. And oh, it, that's just, it started to slowly drive me crazy. Yeah. And you can't kick him out if it's his game. Right. <laughs> so like, you know, I'd, I'd make my move and then right after I finished, I'd look at my cards. Okay. I think this is probably what I'm going to do next turn. So I'm ready. When it comes back around to me, I'm ready. And I'm paying attention to what's going on, and maybe something will change a little bit, but I'm pretty sure that these two cards are the ones I'm playing. Well, so my turns, I felt like, were just bang, bang, bang. Well, it came back around to this to this guy, and he's like, oh, I don't know what I'm going to do. So he's he spends, I don't know, 10 minutes 
whatever, looking at his cards or, or fiddle farting around with something. And it just kind of started to drive me out of my mind. That's rough. But, um, yeah. So I, I, um, I noted this a little bit farther down that you were talking about chess clocks and I've heard of, it's a cubish, it's a cubic chess clock. So it will, it will handle six players. And so if you have a six player game, basically you can make sure that people just kind of keep going with their turns. So I found there's, there's a listing for this on Amazon, but of course now it's out of stock. (laughs) So, um, if you have that one pokey player, then maybe you need to have one of these to kind of, move things along. But yeah, I'm, yeah. I'm looking at this. It looks really neat, and that's really yeah. handy to be able to handle mo- you know, more than more than two players. Yeah. So uh, I don't... And it's... Uh, I linked it on Amazon. It's called the DGT Cube Timer Chess Clock. And uh, people might be able to find it elsewhere. I'm not sure. Um, but, yeah. So it, to, as far as moving games along, it's... That might be helpful. I but know. Yeah. Uh, oh yes. Uh, I was just going to say. I know the the main reason like 40k uh, stuff is is going to chess clocks. Uh, the ITS is is because horde players, as a strategy, will deliberately slow down in a tournament. Um, okay. in, in, in order to to try and win. It's you know if if I have like 150 figures to move in one turn, I'm gonna be real slow because and you can you know, legitimately say, well, I want to be real precise about where things are going. Right. Yeah. And so that that becomes kind of a strategy, and people are yeah. like, well, you know, that's bullshit. You know, blah blah blah. And they've they've gone back and forth on like what to do, and the the big solution has been chess clocks. Okay. Now yeah, I did want to mention you you with you playing Gloomhaven. I saw Gloomhaven for sale at MechaCon uh, this weekend for two hundred and fifty dollars. That's insane. Why? I think not, there's ten boxes on the floor at Miniature Market for ninety. Not only that, I saw it sold at that price. The wow. guy sold two copies. At two hundred and fifty uh, bucks, and that the main reason why was quote unquote, it was hard to find. Somebody got hosed. They yeah, got they, they really they did. It for, yeah, six months ago that Somebody's was true, upset. but it's just not anymore. <laughs> I yeah. know because it's like I looked at it and I was like, does did these people not have like Amazon or Miniature Market or the War Store or cool stuff or in the internet? You know, yeah, anywhere yeah. on the on the internet that has it. I was like, my local game store has got yeah. like three or four in stock at a hundred and thirty dollars. You know, so whatever. Yeah, I, it just blew my mind, and not only the fact that they were ballsy enough to to price it at a hundred dollars over MSRP, but the fact that it sold twice. Wow. Yeah. So um, I I enjoyed it. It was all right. I I would like to play it again. We uh, lost the first scenario. Um, because part of it, I think, is we kind of had the, the D&D mindset that once you clear out a room, then you take that time to take a short rest and, you know, get spells back and just kind of kind of recharge. But the in Gloomhaven, the encounter basically starts once you go through the door of the dungeon and then you're under a time clock. And um, there are some cards that you have to 
lose from your deck. So sometimes you can take a rest and get some cards back, but you also lose one. And so it's kind of a built-in timer that eventually you get down to the point where you only have like three cards and you have to play two every turn. Um, so you're kind of, you, you're, you're, um, things you can do get more and more limited to the point where you just have to give up and be exhausted and be kicked out of the game. Um, so it's, we spent too much time on the first room and we should have just kept on going. Um, but anyway, I, yeah, I didn't enjoy it and we'll, we'll have to give it another try later on. That sounds Hopefully very similar to my experience with it. Almost, you know, yeah. word for word, what you said, it was fun. I think it's going to be better. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So yeah, how was so. the how was the real estate for it? Like how much did you think it took up a lot of room? Once we kind of sorted out what was needed and what was not needed, so like we had the there's a a, a hard sided um, like a world map, and we looked at that and uh, you know said okay well we're going to go here we're going to put this sticker on then we folded that up and set it aside. But once we kind of got the um, the preliminary stuff out of the way, then we kind of pared it down to, we had it, we, we had it covered a five by five table, but I mean, it was, there was plenty of, of extra space too. So, um, yeah, it was not, and that, I'd always heard that how, uh, how heavy it was with covering a table with pieces. And, uh, we kind of managed to trim it down a little bit. Yeah, I just I know from just personally seeing it done, it, it was like I was like, wow, there is a lot of stuff on the yeah. table for that. Yeah. Yep. All right, cool. So, so what else? What else do you got? Well, so when I went to uh, Dice Tower Con, uh, they have a library there, and my nine-year-old daughter saw this game called in German Geister Geister Schatzmeister, <laughs> and so. Um, and it had it, it won the 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 Kinderspiel for 2014, and so I thought, well, it can't be all bad. I mean, and uh, it was it's was in German, but the uh, there was some English rules in there too. So it's a co-op kids game where you, there's a haunted house, and each room has uh, a certain amount of of ghosts that spawn on it every turn, and once there gets to be two ghosts in a room. A third ghost, then it turns into a haunt, which is even tougher to fight. And so the kids are running into the house and they're collecting the gems and running back out and trying to keep the the ghosts at a kind of a manageable level. So as far as uh, kind of intergenerational games, this is all right. It's um, it's cute and the the little ghost and haunt figures are pretty nifty. And uh, there's there's plenty of strategy for it and communication between. Um, the different players like, well, okay, I'm going to go and try to get this gem. And, uh, so you, why don't you go over here to this room and try to keep the, the ghost down. Um, and so there, it has been translated into English and it's called, uh, ghost fighting treasure hunters, which is uh, the most fantastic name for a board game I've ever heard. Yeah. I would buy, if I saw that on the shelf, I'm like, I would have to be like, I want to play ghost fighting treasure hunters. It yep. sounds awesome. So as far as, as as kids games go, it's it's pretty good. Um, so we picked that up from Amazon when we when we got home. I will say, looking at the board game geek entry, apparently it was re-implemented into the Ghostbusters board game. Ghostbusters oh, okay. Protect the Barrier game in 2016. So it, okay. uh, the, I guess the mechanics are the same for that game if you're familiar with that. Ah, no, I did not see that. 
So then, played... uh, oh, yeah. Yeah, I, I oh. was just going to say, you played Century Eastern Wonders? Yes. So uh, I've, I've mentioned the, the Century games before. There's a Century Spice Road, and then there's a Century Eastern Wonders. And so uh, this is a, you lay up a tile, um, a tile board that has different islands on it, and you're sailing from island to island, collecting cubes, uh, trading cubes, and then eventually, once you have the right recipe, then you move to the port and sell your uh, your whatever recipe you have to get points. So I mean, it's it's very similar to, um, well, to Century Spice Road or to Splendor, uh, but there's an added thing of there where you have to move the ship around. So if there's something that you if you really need to make a trade halfway across the board or all the way across the board, you uh, have to take several turns to get over there. Or you can kind of go in a sprint, but then you're leaving cubes behind you that somebody else can come along and pick up. Um, so it's it's a solid game in the same uh, vein as Century Spice Road. And uh, But one thing I did notice is that Century Eastern Wonders is a four-player game. And Century Spice Road is a five-player game, which I didn't quite understand why they didn't make both of them five players. Mm. Really do you odd, think? Yeah. It, do you think you could play this one with five, or is it like not? Don't have the markers well, for it or you whatever. Need, you need to have another set of. Uh, you need to have another color ship. Oh, okay. There's each uh, island. You put down a little trading house. Uh, where you need, if you want to trade on a particular island, then you set down a trading house there, and then you can go ahead and do that. And this so is, you said this is going to be a trilogy, right? So two of yeah. the three out already? Okay. Yes. Uh-huh. Yep. And so then, uh, <laughs> actually, uh, last night I hung a uh, dartboard up in my house, up in my garage, which I awesome. had. This, I've had this dartboard laying around for quite a while. And... Um, I don't, do kids in college still play darts, like the soft tip darts? Well, I think it depends on like the town. I know, like the college I graduated with had a couple of bars with dart leagues. You know, and yeah. that was like a thing. They just they had like three or four, uh, you know, uh, boards up, and they would actually have leagues. Okay. Yeah, dart leagues are pretty common here as well. So, so you guys probably know that, that as far as. Um, strategic dart games crickets right up there so that was really pretty much the only game that we ever played back in college so my wife and i played a couple of games of uh cricket last night which uh was kind of a blast from the past and we're both pretty rusty so yeah i'm terrible at darts we've got a we've got a dartboard in the the basement of our church and i've played with our pastor a couple times and um i'm just like i'm random if yeah. I hit the board, I'm happy. <laughs> I've I've really wanted to do one of the local leagues. We actually have some in the area, and they play at like six different bars, you mm -hmm. know, in the area. I've wanted to do it, but dadgummit, uh, I you know, I just I can't I can't get out and whatever, you know. But it looks so cool. At the very least, I would love to put one up in my garage. Maybe if I finally ever clean it out. Yeah, well, it's, that was kind of the the um, the icing on the cake of cleaning out the garage this weekend. Uh, awesome. And I mean, gr uh, darts are super inexpensive too. Even yeah. if you like buy like this super duper badass elite darts, you know, a set of them is going to run you like 30 bucks. But the reality mm -hmm. is, is you can buy like a decent set for like $6, you know? So just cool. 
Yeah. So I've been playing a lot of kids' games up here lately, apparently. Um, that's, so, that's understandable. I, I absolutely uh, understand that and uh, <laughs> can to- totally see that happening. A lot of times I'm like, wow, I got in a lot of board gaming this month, but it was all kids' games. So, uh, which brings me to a game called Heckmeck Barbecue. So, all right, you, you have my attention. Setting the scene here. So it's a chicken worm barbecue so the the worms go onto the barbecue and the chickens eat them um so to get a little bit more in depth this is a pressure luck game with dice there's uh eight dice and the five instead of a five it's a little worm which is still worth five and the board has uh goes from 23 to 36 uh spaces on the board and so if you can roll, let's say you can roll a 25, you can put one of your little plate pieces on there and take that many worms that it shows there. And if somebody else rolls a 25, they bump you off and they take your worms. If you can roll two 25s, then you can lock that in place and nobody can take that from you. And so uh, eventually you're, um, you're kind of strategically trying to say, okay, well, what's out there that I can can hit just, you know, so if I, I'm at 23, but I need to be at a 27. So I need a three or I need three ones. And if I get two threes, well, that's, I'm sunk. I have to go, you know, I have to go to 20, what, 20, 30, I guess. Um, so it's, it's a, uh, it's a pressure luck game. You see, keep on rolling dice as long as you want to, but there you get to kind of the, a point of diminishing returns where you may get a roll and go bust. Um, so it'd be akin to the game 10,000 sort of, if, uh, if people are familiar with 10,000, which is just a straight up dice game. It's kind of a bar game. 10,000, anyone? No, I've never, pl- never no, heard of that. Not one. familiar with that one. No. Um, Farkle is, uh, uh, kind that of one the, I, the, yes, that one I played. Yes. Yes. Yeah. That one. I know. 10,000. So it's, it's okay. kind of it's a, a, a kind of a cutesy version with worms and chickens that's uh, like Farkle. Okay. So right. Mac- yeah. Thank you. Uh, yeah, I was just curious as to what the worms' motivation was to jump on to be involved on the barbecue. Yeah. Just just curious, and I see it's designed by uh, Reiner Kaneza, who yeah. was my my favorite member of the Wu Tang Clan. <laughs> <laughs> So yeah, He's, um, that's cool. You know, him as a designer, he kind of he kind of sort of comes up with the concept and then just kind of shoehorns a, a theme around it. It seems like kind of what he's, uh, I think, known for. Heck and then uh, barbecue. Yes. So there was a there was a game that we played at Dice Tower Con, which I believe was called just Heckmeck, but it's it's also a German game, and um, they don't. It's not in stock in the States right now. So we, we settled for Heckmeck barbecue, which is very similar. Yeah. So. It, it really sounds interesting. So. Yeah. I remember a book I read when I was a kid called how to eat fried worms. Oh yeah. Right? He I lost a bet one. and he had to eat 50 different worms. And this game reminds me of that. <laughs> <laughs> and so then finally I played uh, Livingstone, which is a playroom game. So playroom entertainment. I can't, think of what else that they do yeah it escapes me um so this uh is also a dice game 
and um, the there's you're putting out tents uh, on the um, on the map, and then every round as there's a ship that goes up and down the river too, and so at each round the ship moves one space, and it scores that column, and so you, if you have if you take a die, you have the option to put a tent out on whatever space that the die shows or a die will also get you a card that you can take or also get you that quantity of uh, coins. And so you're collecting points, um, of course, to get the highest, highest score. But the other part of it is that there's um, each player has a little treasure chest with a slot in the top and you can spend coins to put a tent down. You can also spend coins to go into that treasure chest. Well, the treasure chest is tribute to the queen. And if at the end of the game, everything gets scored and then everybody opens their chest and whoever has contributed the least just loses outright. <laughs> so it's, it's a, um, there's, you got to kind of keep an eye on what other people are doing and how much they're putting in there and make sure that you're, you know, at least more than they are. Um, but so you collect points, go around the board, and uh, you can also get a, a card that will let you do some additional things. So yeah, uh, Livingstone, or Livingstone, I guess, I'm not sure. I will say the art direction on it looks fantastic. Yes. Really dig yep, that. Very lovely. Yeah, the game looks fun. Mm-hmm. Oh yeah, I forgot about right. the stones. There's a, there's a little, there's, there's a bag of stones that you can... Um, draw from too so your die that you have you can take six stones out of there and trade them in for money um or you can kind of hang on to them and bank them but there's also a single white stone in the bag that says if the white stone comes out then everything that everybody's collected goes away goes back to the bag so there's a there's what i think there's 50 of those stones in there and there's one white one and so you can see the ones that come out, and the the bag gets thinner and thinner, and the white one hasn't come out yet. So you kind of, you know, do I really want to go to the bag now? Because the probability of that white stone coming up gets closer and closer, or gets higher and higher. Uh, I was going to say, uh, before we get into some other things, uh, a little bit of housekeeping. We were going to talk about the overturned Rising Sands Kickstarter that we talked about so much last time. So, did, did you hear what happened, guys? I did. It's that we talked about how we were going to keep a close eye on it. And, uh, you know, that's one of the nice things about Kickstarter is that you can you can tell it, hey, I want to follow this. Even if I haven't paid anything, you know, Kickstarter will keep sending you reminders. So I got to keep checking back and keep checking back. And I think when we talked about it, it was at, what, maybe $150,000 with yeah, three or four days to go. With about two days later, it was down to 110000 And then I think the day before it was supposed to fund, it was still, I think, over $100,000 when Kickstarter finally pulled the plug on it. Now, was it was it Kickstarter that pulled the plug, or was it the developers? Kickstarter. I, I thought it was Kickstarter, because okay. it said Kickstarter yeah. has suspended this uh, this project or whatever. So okay. yeah, it was my understanding it was it was actually Kickstarter, which I think was the best thing in the world for them to do because 
you know, we've talked about it before. Um, legally, I honestly have no idea if there would have been any recourse or if Kickstarter could have been in any problem. But even if it wasn't a legal problem, it would have really hurt Kickstarter's name to have that thing blow up because it's not like it was sneaking up on anyone. It was pretty obvious that that was a scam. Dad gum, I was so curious to see how it played out, you know. I, I really would. Say, like, it barely got funded, you know, and then, yeah. you know, just to see. Because, I mean, man, I was hopeful. I, like I said, I looking at that, I was like, I had never heard of this. But looking at it, I was like, Dad gum, I would have backed this. It looks awesome, you know. And But, yeah. Yeah. It was super duper shady. Yeah, and, and who's yeah. to know what's, I mean, what what's to stop these guys from doing this again i guess that's and, that's yeah. the real question well i i touched on that a little bit last time that's kind of where we are is you were asking to get ripped off by you know uh, continuingly to to push kickstarters up to this un insane mil multi-million dollar level you're asking for a huge scam to come you know like I said, somebody from Smith County, Mississippi could get together with a graphics artist and come up with just some scammy thing. And as long as they did it better than the half-assedness as that one was, where they were literally cut and pasting rule books and, uh, you know, uh, bios of the, the people, you know, it was so obviously a scam. It, all it would take is just a little bit more effort and you could laugh all the way to the bank. And honestly, kicks, there's nothing to do do about it. If you back a Kickstarter for millions of dollars, you're just out the money. Kickstarter's like, oh, well, you know, because that happens. We cover it every now and then on here uh, that it, it just happens. Like, I know um, I stopped myself from getting in an, a Kickstarter argument on Board Game Geek about who else uh, Steve Jackson Games is going to do another Kickstarter. Oh, I hadn't yeah, heard about that one. I heard well, they're they're coming for something new, and they they were asking people like, "Well, what do you want from us?" And I commented, "I was like, don't do a Kickstarter." And apparently, there are Kickstarter white knights that come out of the woodwork to defend companies that are like, "Hey, man, this is the '70s. This is how games are made nowadays," you know. <laughs> and so I just I didn't say anything. But, you know, it was they had a lot of defenders about them coming out, although they have not announced the Kickstarter. They yeah. were simply asking, what did people want for uh, this particular thing? And I just said, please don't do a Kickstarter because you don't need to because you have a lot of money. Yeah. And another huge one just got announced today. Epic Max, Tiny Epic Max. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. We have not got to that one yeah i want to mention that because i had never heard of that whole thing and yeah i i wanted to talk about that yeah i've heard i've heard of tiny epic before and i i've played i don't remember which one i played but i played a tiny epic game before but yeah that that just happened today where i guess they announced the kickstarter date and people are just everybody's talking about tiny epic max right now so yeah, what what I was talking about, it's it's another ogre Kickstarter. It was oh, okay. possibly yeah, possibly Wait, for a mark. So for four. a reprint? No 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 no. It was add-ons. Oh it, okay. It, they were thinking about doing something in the future and looking at this, and I'll post this in the show notes. It was a thread from Board Game Geek. Of uh, this guy Wolf Ninety Drew apparently is connected to them somehow. Anyway, 
Uh, it was either like for a Mark IV or another to be determined ogre. Battlefields, an expansion set, uh, Nightfall, a campaign of Link scenarios, or some other things. Like, hey, what do you want us to do for the next Kickstarter? And my response was, don't do a Kickstarter. So, <laughs> you know, anyway. So, ah, uh, moving on to, uh, where are we? Okay. All right. We're on, uh, what's on your radar? And uh, the first thing we had was this cube chess clock, which looks awesome and sexy that we mentioned earlier. And I'll link that. It will be there. Now, I, I did see that um, it's also available from the uh, developer. Or I don't know. Is, is that the right word? Um, from digital yeah, game I think technology, so. Um, they have, have it available. So you can buy it directly from the, the, uh, the manufacturer. Sure, yeah, because, I mean, Amazon would, you know, go out of stock of whatever because they may not necessarily get it directly from the developer. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, I like that. All right. Uh, the, the first thing I had was uh, Conquest, The Last Argument of Kings. And I thought I had mentioned this before, but apparently not. Yeah, I don't think and we've talked about this. No, um, this is a mass battle fantasy game which i think was kickstarted a a successful kickstarter that has not delivered yet i say successful as in the sense that it's ended and was funded and apparently it has not shipped yet and this is simply just the website for them to actually sell it to us common folk who did not kickstart it and you know mass battle fantasy i'm always interested in especially depending on the scale Although this scale appears to be around 28 millimeters, so it's just going to be kind of normal. You've got dwarves, uh, Norse, and uh, regular folks, the Hundred Kingdoms, and some kind of like demon-looking things there. So I gotta say, their webpage is like super duper flashy, and I'll have this linked in the show notes. It looks really, really nice. A lot of art direction and design was was put into this, and but I don't know. Don't know how the game is or plays or whatnot, so we'll continue to follow this in the future. I guess I always have a question when I see stuff like this because, I mean, if if I'm looking at this and I go, wow, this looks really cool, who am I ever going to play this with? I mean, honestly, so I'm, I'm, I'm into Star Wars Legion right now, and Star Wars is maybe the biggest intellectual property in the world. It's If not, it's at least on the list, and it's not doing that well. I mean, there's a few players that are playing it. It's a fun game and people are enjoying it. It's having a hard time getting traction. So I wonder about a game like this that, I mean, if I bought this, I guess, the core box or whatever, I guess I'm just going to play with whoever I invite over to play and then hopefully they like the game to buy some more. But I, I just, I don't see how something like this can develop a community that can get enough you know, enough traction and enough weight behind it to really push forward. That That's very true. I guess it kind of comes down to you. It's like you are like, oh my gosh, I love this so much. Let me buy two forces and take it down to my local gaming store and just start demoing it. Yeah, I think that's what you got to do. And I, I wonder if consciously or unconsciously companies actually depend on that. To be like, well, the only way we're actually going to get the word out is if, if 
this happens, you know. Yeah. If we actually put this stuff out and these guys, you know, put it down and, and love it and whatnot. I will say, you know, the companies we have interviewed and will interview in the future have always been very um, good about like, well, yeah, I'll come on your podcast and talk about it, you know, to try to get the word out. Um, so that's great. And, you know, that's kind of a thing you'll, you would have to do as a company to realize, you know, this is a very crowded market that you're coming into. And that's, that's the thing for me is like, how original are you? What makes your game different than any other fantasy or sci-fi game that you would compete with? What is the hook? You know, is it your rules are so awesome? Is, do you have completely different factions? Like I've never seen before. That's really important to me you know, is to see that, you know, what makes you different. So Adam, you, you are more into minis than any of the three of us. What are you looking for primarily in any sort of, I mean, whether it's, whether it's minis on a board or, uh, you know, proper miniatures war game, what are you looking for primarily? Are you looking for theme? Or are you looking for interesting rules? Are you looking for the quality of the sculpts? What makes you want to buy something? Uh, originality for one like we talked about judgment being 54 millimeter that was different than anything i had seen i had seen not only was it 54 millimeter it was on like a three by three playing field i'm like okay those two things are really original to me or or not in the not necessarily original is nobody else is doing it right now yeah you know, uh, that's that big of scale miniatures on that small of a thing. It's really neat. So that attracts me initial initially, and then I'll start looking at. Well, let's look at the factions. How cool are the factions? How cool are the miniatures? And they're like, okay, if I really like that, well, tell me about the lore of the game and the rules. And I, I guess the final thing for me is price point. You know. If all of it adds up, but it comes down to like, well, you need like to drop three, four hundred dollars on it, it's gonna be no, I, I'm gonna pass. Yeah. Because again, nobody is playing this, so it would be on me to buy it enough to go to my local shop, or, or at the very least, you know, if it's cheap enough, I won't care. I'll just buy two forces, and maybe I'll play it every now and then with a couple friends and be fine. You know, but uh, if you're trying to grow to to eventually get to that level that Warhammer 40k is or whatever, you have to do a lot of things different. I know right now for fantasy, you would completely have my attention if you were doing small scale. If you, if you were doing 15 millimeter or something like that, you would completely have my attention. Mm. But... If you're doing like 28, eh, I really don't care because I'm playing Age of Sigmar right now, and uh, I have no real reason to play anything else. I mean, Kings of War is—they're doing the more block-style unit movement, and I do think it's neat that with them, you don't take casualties off, so you can actually build like just mini dioramas for your blocks of of, of infantry. That's neat, but it, to me, it's nothing original. You know, I, I've just seen it in other stuff, but yeah. So that's just kind of what I would... I mean, factions with this one kind of looks cool because I'm a big fan of dwarves. That's my favorite um, 
favorite thing and their their dwarf guys look kind of neat but uh yeah other than that i mean looking at this it's going to be what's the scale what's the price point and uh we'll go from there but the reality is nine times out of ten this stuff is coming out of europe somewhere which completely defeats anything because i'm gonna have to spend a lot of money to get it shipped here and just eh whatever so moving on, uh, I discovered this, and you guys play games with your kids. I thought this would be great. This is Pajamas. This is a rule system. Uh, it's P-I-J-A-M-A-S. Stands for the French Papa. Blah, 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 blah. Daddy plays toy soldiers with me. It is a family of miniature <laughs> rule sets, which are simple, quick, efficient, educational, and fun, with the youngsters as the primary target. They all provide a core rule set, which can be uh, completed by optional rules when the players see fit. These optional rules add historical flavor and more tactical choices, but no complex t complexity. The system uses only D6. So, these I thought were kind of neat. It's basically World War II uh, miniatures. I think the, the link I have is for uh, Pajamas Omaha. Yeah, which, is that the only one out so far? It says there's going to be a series, but I haven't been able to find any others yet. I know, so, and looking at, the, and this came out in 2014, too, and all I have for this is the uh, the Board Game Geek list. So if there is, I'm uh, sorry, the Board Game Geek entry, if yeah. there is a company uh, webpage, it's not listed on here. Yeah, when I saw this, um, I immediately thought of a friend of mine that wants to – he's in a similar situation to me. His son's a little older than my daughter is. My daughter's almost nine. I think his boy is probably 11 or so, but um, same situation. He wants to play a light you know, war game miniatures with him, and they've been playing Memoir 44. So uh, he says – Hey, that's what this looks like is Memoir 44. That's exactly what I was thinking, especially yeah. – yeah, you look at some of these, and it looks very much like Memoir 44. So, so is, this this, one's, is this just a rule set, or is this miniatures too? Looks like just a rule set. Okay. So, yeah, for – it's you know kind of like with historicals, it's you pretty much got to come up with your own stuff. Or they kind of think, well, maybe you will have your own stuff. Mm -hmm. already and can just move it around historicals yeah. are that way and that would be nice if you do have stuff and you're looking for a way to use what you have with your your child that's a good idea yeah this landing crash was pretty cool yeah i thought it was neat and uh, that uh, that appears to be 15 millimeter it also appears to be flames of war stuff uh stuff from uh battlefront miniatures is what it looks like to me okay uh, you'll see it in the show notes so uh, the next thing I had was Tribal, which is a – I just thought this was neat because it's kind of something different from most uh, other miniature games. This one is a skirmish combat game in a pre-gunpowder tribal-slash-clan setting. And of course, they say it offers some new and exciting approaches to wargaming. Yeah, so and this this kind of goes to what we were just talking about. This is it's unique. Uh, it's unique in its setting. Um, it looks like it uses a deck of cards for resolution, which I yep. I don't know if there are any others that do that. I mean, I, I do have games that use cards, but not literally a, a standard deck of cards. Right. I know. Um, 
what you call it, Will. Weird Games is big oh, thing. Deadlands, right? Uh, uh, That's RPG, but yeah, it's, Deadlands it's, um... does use them. They use them for initiative, and they use them for I can't remember what the class is, but like whatever their spellcasting classes, they use cards okay. as well. Malifo, that's what I was trying to think of. Oh, Weird okay. Games is Malifo. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh, okay. Yep. They do. They do their own quote unquote their own card set, but you can adapt. You can use a plain set of cards if you want to. But yeah, looks pretty neat. Uh, looks like you. It's just a standard uh, reference guide that you can download. And let's see if I wanted to actually buy Tribal, and this is an Australian uh, company. Oh, yeah, I love how it doesn't give us any option. You could either have it shipped from Australia or Europe. <laughs> uh, looking through North Star figures, uh, Tribal's about 15 pounds. So that's probably around 20, 25 Eagle Tears. So there you go. It looks pretty neat. I'd love to know like what the scale was. It, it appears to be small-scale skirmish. looks to be about 5, 6 guys per side and that's attractive to me and just the primitive nature of this is kind of attractive to me too because basically it's i don't have a gun i'm gonna have to run over there and hit you in the head with a club or a bone or something so that's kind of neat yeah i think taking the power away sometimes is a way to uh make something more fun i talked about that a little bit in my asl blog but i like in asl i really like playing the minor powers because they're not all elite with the heavy firepower and everything sometimes it's more fun when they're weaker yeah you were playing your your uh people your hungarian yeah my hungarians <laughs> so was the hungarians that was an axis minor power yes yep so you you were playing that versus russians right correct okay cool all right so uh the next thing i had was a kickstarter this is a Kickstarter for um, Shatter, Shatterlands, which is a rule set, a fantasy rule set. This is a Kickstarter for a miniature line. And they don't really want that many miniatures made. I think it's just like six you know, different miniatures for their series they're trying to make. And uh, I just thought it was neat because I had never heard of this uh, rule set, which was apparently recently Kickstarted. I will say, as of this podcast... They want fifteen hundred bucks. They've raised three hundred and seventy-four. Yeah, and it, oh. unless you can edit this really quickly, it's going to be too late. Yeah, <laughs> this is okay. It's only a hundred, a hundred and twelve minutes to go. <laughs> Not looking good for them. So I'll link it in the show notes, and I guess you'll see. I know um, a lot of times, like at this point, they will. They'll, honestly, they'll pull it, you know, at this point and try to redo some other stuff. But no, there's no update. Last update was like five uh, days ago. So here you go. It just looked, you know, neat. And again, it's just a small primitive type rule set. And uh, I just kind of dig that. And I thought it would fit well with the other one we were talking about. So anyway, moving on. I This is Nexus and Nexus looks awesome. Uh, Nexus is coming to Kickstarter, I think, what are we in, July? I think, okay, it will be August. It'll be, I think, end of, oh, actually, by the time you hear this, it, you, yeah, it should be there. I think it uh, comes August 1st. What attracted me to this is these miniatures are 75 millimeter. Yeah. 
So these things are huge. I mean, these are... 54 is about the size of a 40k Dreadnought, at least in height. So 75 is going to be about half again, just as big. And they look pretty neat and detailed. This is a board game with miniatures. And again, that whole thing we talk about all the time, it gets really confusing as what makes a miniature game, what makes a board game. But this has an actual squared board, and it is 1, 2, 3, 4, 5, 6, 7, 8 by 8. 8 squares by 8 squares, it appears to be. And um, the background on it is kind of cool. It's, you know, this terrible future, and you're raiding, like, wrecked ships that are in the sky. They'll be at Gen Con this year, so you can see them then. And, uh, yeah, it just... I like it. I like the, the look of it. But again, it's going to come down to cost. And I really worry that with 75mm metal figures or even resin figures, this is going to be kind of expensive. It says it takes about 15 to 45 minutes to play, which is also attractive. It's two-player, which is attractive. Uh, it's mature. It's 18+. plus. That is also attractive. You don't really see a lot of people that are pigeonhole themselves in there it says it's rife with violence and inappropriate humor it's like a game made by children for adults so that is all very attractive <laughs> so okay mr nexus it's gonna come down to dollars it, it really is that's that's what it's gonna be if you're like you know what if you want uh to buy our starter it'll be 500 bucks i'm gonna be like eh, no sorry i gotta pass but, you know, past that, we'll talk. We'll talk. I mean, uh, certainly if I could get this nice game for under $100, bucks, we will we'll talk. But again, this is that whole thing of, well, if it's a successful Kickstarter, I can just wait and pick this up from Miniature Market for cheap. Or from what it would be here. So, we'll see. I kind of want to continue following this, and we'll just see how it is. So moving on, um, I discovered The Drowned Earth, and you can go to thedrownedearth.com. And I, it was so interesting, I immediately ordered it. I did. It was a successful Kickstarter that you can now um, purchase whatever for it. And I, it, what sucks is it's coming from uh, the UK. I really had to shill out a bunch of eagle tears for this. And... Um, I found the miniatures to be attractive, which was really, really cool. I ordered the one with the little elephant guy and uh, one of the other ones so I can battle each other, um, get my friend, I guess Chris or somebody, to play the other guys. The miniatures, were they look really cool. They look sculpted really well. And I really like the fact that you play this on, I think it's on a 2x2. Two two. It's either 2x2 two two or 3x3. Or three is the playing area. So you know me, I love small scale skirmish. Yeah, so, so you, it's it's obvious, it's from the UK. I assume you're going to get hit hard on shipping. Um, I don't know what pounds to dollars is, but you know, for one faction starter box for 42 pounds and miniatures for about 8 pounds, that that seems very reasonable as far as price. Yeah, yeah, I mean, I, but, you know, you get into that whole thing of, like, well, nobody plays this. It's not like I'm... I, exactly, I mean, honestly, yeah. I, I think I spent around 130 bucks. But, you know, if I was spending $130 worth of 40 k stuff, well, 
that would be great because I absolutely could get in a game or $130 of Age of Sigmar. That is super, super easy to play. But with this, it's kind of risky. It, and it has to be like, wow, I really dig this so much. And what attracted to what is attractive is the sculpts and the scale. The fact that I'm playing on the smaller board. And wonder of wonders, I actually ran into a, another guy that was as crazy as me that had ordered this. He apparently kickstarted it. And he's, um, I don't know, about 50, 60 miles away from me. And we were actually going to get together at Mechacon this past weekend and play, but he wasn't able to. But just the fact that, well, I travel there at least once a year so I could run into you and we could play was cool. So, I mean, that's a lot better than I've ever ended up doing. Because usually I'll just buy it. I'm, I'm literally the only person in Mississippi that has it. Hmm. I can't tell you how many rule sets that that is the truth. How many miniatures, you know, companies or whatever. I'm literally the only player in the entire state. That's me. So, uh, moving on. Um, I found a wargaming... What do you call a board game centered around war? Is it a war game? Do you just call it that? Yeah, I mean... A war game? Yeah, you can call... I mean, the the definition of a war game is, is pretty flexible, but yeah, if it's a board game that's centered around a war, I, I would definitely call it a war game. Alright, well... I, I mean, even, even if there's no combat in it, if I mean, you can... You know, strategic games can often be more about supply lines and economics than they are the actual battles, so... True. Uh, I found a war gaming company called New England Simulations... And I, maybe you that are listening to this are like, oh, yeah, I know them. I have all their stuff. Uh, to me, I had never heard of them. And they've what I can see as of this podcast, they only have four games available, World War II and Napoleonics, respectively. And they just seem really neat. It looks kind of like kind of a boutique-type uh, company, and it seems to be pretty re- reasonable. Uh, looking at the Battle of Dresden, 1813, is 26 bucks plus shipping and handling. It's yep. a U.S. company. I see. Uh, that's I the only one available right now. Yeah, the other ones are yeah. sold out. Right. So I'm assuming it's it's they're kind of a boutique thing where you um you I guess they'll do like a P500 thing or you know people are like I'm interested or whatever and then they'll get it. Mm-hmm. So, uh, yeah, I had never heard of them before, so I was just going to, you know, mention them here. And, uh, yeah, uh, I'm really interested in Winter's Victory, which I don't think is out yet. It is a battalion-level simulation of the epic winter battle between Napoleon's Grand Army and the Imperial Russian Army under Count von Bingenstein. So this is something that's coming. I think this is what I saw was somebody on uh, Consim World or somebody mentioned that this was coming out. So eh, it's kind of neat. So, yeah. Yeah, there's so much good stuff out there. I know, and I've gotten on like a whole board game <laughs> kick now, so I'm, I'm like, having to restrain myself from ordering stuff. So. Uh, the next thing I had, which I'd never heard of, was Legion War Games. And again, I know you're listening to this and you're like, how the hell do you not know Legion War Games? And I'm like, well, I didn't. I didn't, and I'm sorry. Um, one thing that really attracted to me, uh, was attractive, was they have Maori Wars, 
which is coming out, which is a uh, New Zealand land wars from 1845 to 1872, the British versus uh, the Maori there. I can't think of another board game that covered this particular uh, era, and I just I find that era fascinating, and so I think uh, it'll be really neat. But yeah, Legion apparently has a bunch of stuff, and lucky for me, they're actually uh, sold by NWS, so I can get them really cheap. So uh, yeah, yeah. There, Another one. There's w- a couple on here that I've heard really good things about. Uh, Target for today and Picket Duty. I've I've both yes. had those recommended to me. So. Y- yep, Picket Duty, and I think it's Picket Duty is solitaire though, right? Yeah, and Target for today. It's either solitaire or it's solitaire capable. Yeah. Another one I was attracted to was Blenheim 1704 because it's the quote unquote seven hex system. It's a new system. And not only is it like, you know, it has Marlboro in it uh, from that particular era, but the fact that like you're, you will have, you're in your hex and now, and you'll have influence around six hexes around you except for seven hex total. I really think that's neat, and I would like to see how that plays. Hmm. So, moving on. Um, hey, if you guys have been living under a rock, let me tell you something. Did you know the Expanse role-playing game is coming out? The Expanse? <laughs> I haven't heard anything about that. <laughs> yeah, it's the talk uh, of the town. Yeah, it's yeah, it's it's nuts. And it's as of this podcast, they wanted a measly thirty grand, and as of this podcast, they've got about a quarter of a million dollars, uh, with twenty-two days left to go. Uh, for twenty bucks, you can get the PDF. That's not bad, but I mean, honestly, at this point, it's funded. I'm pretty sure I would be able to buy the PDF at a future point on sale from Drive Through RPG for about fifteen. Maybe. So, uh, I don't know. I don't know if I want to um, back this or not. I, I, I do have it selected to remind me. But, uh, yeah, I don't know. Don't know if I want to back it or not. Because it's, it's already funded, and I think I can get it cheaper once it's finished. You know, that's the whole thing with Kickstarter. But, uh, yeah, this is going to be pretty freaking big, I have to say. They, uh, golly, they've unlocked all but two stretch goals. So, um, yeah, this is going to be pretty big. Really, really big. Yeah, I figure once this book starts showing up at Miniature Market or Game Night, I'll, I'll definitely flip through it, even if even if I'm not interested in, in buying this or playing this one. You know, my RPG group may say, hey, give it a shot or whatever. So I'll take a look at it. Not interested in the Kickstarter per se, but who knows what ho- the future holds on that one. Now, do you guys watch the show? Read the books? No, I don't, but... Uh, uh- Oh, man, I can't recommend it enough. It's uh, for one thing, what it has going for it to be original is it's quote unquote hard sci fi. It's completely based in reality. Yeah, yeah, there's no artificial gravity, you know, and, and stuff like that. You have all this stuff with physics, you know, in it, and they work really hard to try to make it as realistic as possible and so i dig that so and uh it's awesome it's well written if you like the books the books are great and the series is great it's i thought it was perfectly cast and blah 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 so there you go 
Moving on. Uh, yeah, I wanted to ask Richard: Is do I need to order Armies of Oblivion? No. Come on. We've already talked about it. How else are you going to play the Hungarians? I know. I know. I know. I know. <laughs> yes, you need the Armies of Oblivion. We all need the Armies so, of Oblivion. Tell me, like, what section of the war is is in this? What 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 is in here? So I'm get this is uh, Hungarians. I'm guessing Romanians are probably in there too. Um, you know, it's it's the Axis miners. So uh, let's see if it actually has. There's obviously a bunch of scenarios in there. Let's see if a list of. I mean, obviously this one's an insta buy for me. So because you know, <laughs> it may be ten or twelve years before they print it again, and I don't want to wait that long. So. Now, um, when these come to you, do they come in sh- in shrink wrap or anything? Uh, yeah, it's a big, thick cardboard box. It's also shrink wrapped. Mm-hmm. Okay. Well, I, I'm I'm somewhat serious here. I think you got to buy two of them, and then you, I, it's like an investment. Yes, I I mean I've definitely thought about it, and you know, there's because MMP is the way they are. So, uh, yeah, I mean, everyone says with Advanced Squad later if. If you want to play it, you know, when it comes in print, you have to buy it. And I don't necessarily need to buy everything. I mean, for King and Country, I wouldn't mind having it, but I'm, I don't need it. Um, this, this is one that I, I need. I need uh, uh, Kota Bushido or Rising Sun or whatever the name, the, the name of the PTO module is. That one is one that I kind of feel like I need. West of Alamein with the Desert Warfare, I, I'm fine not having that one. Um, but this one I really want to get. Yeah, this one is ninety-seven dollars from it, from NWS. Yeah, and that's on, pre-o- on pre-order. That's a pre-order price, right? So yeah, yeah. I mean, that's When's they, you're you're right, Roy. That 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 might not be a bad idea. You can uh, send your kids to college on. on <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I mean, you're not lying because there there are some of them that are like punched and stuff like that that are going for five hundred dollars. Oh, really? Yeah. Wow. So. So yeah, if you had it and it was completely sealed, it, I imagine it would probably go for seven. Oof. Yeah, and that's the crazy thing is this game has a cult following. It's not like 40k where there's just thousands upon thousands of players. It's there's a cult following of these guys that are willing to pay those prices. Mm-hmm. But I, I find it fascinating. It's interesting though because yes, there is it is a cult following. It's not widespread like 40k, but it's got enough that it's popular you know it's not like it's so cultish that there's only four other people in the world to play it there's plenty of people playing it it's just not widespread like 40k or x-wing well and as evidenced by the uh, tournament uh, most of the people that play it are um, of a certain age where they're kind of financially um, secure yeah exactly they can command prices like this yeah yeah, old people always have money. Young yep, people yeah. don't. Old yep. people, old people have money. It's a good reason uh-huh. to check estate sales too. I think I mentioned huh. it a few weeks ago. I just happened to see an estate sale here, and I'm like, "Huh, I wonder if he was an ASL player." <laughs> yep. And you know what? That's a really good idea because I I have noticed this year, not only like locally, I found it locally on a um, a role playing buy sell trade group was a guy that was like, hey, I just bought all this from a estate sale. It's all these miniatures, and I'm not quite sure what they are. I just have pictures here, and this is what I'm asking. And so I look, and I'm like, okay, this guy lives like five miles from me. 
And and so I messaged them. I was like, look, I live really near you, and I can identify all of this stuff if you are interested. And I'm like, I might even want to buy some of it. Mm-hmm. But, yeah, he got it all at an estate sale. And it was, I mean, hundreds of historical miniatures that he picked up locally at an estate sale. And I'm like, wow, I wish, yeah, he probably paid nothing for them. And uh, another, I had a friend link me a Board Game Geek auction today. A guy, and I, I, I sent this to you guys. Yeah, um, I saw that. I checked it out. Yeah, a, a guy bought uh, a bunch of mostly unpunched and or sealed war games, like all this Avalon Hill stuff, from an estate sale, and he's turned around and uh, flipping it on Board Game Geek. I believe it. And so, what? You know, that stuff just happens. I think of uh, a guy at my old gaming club when he finally died. He had thousands of historical miniatures that uh, the guys in the club all bought. I mean, we talked about that. Like, you know, what do you do when you die? You know, your wife wants to know, who do I take this to to, to sell all mm-hmm. your crap? So, you know, I can live a better life now that you're dead. <laughs> now, so, you know, that, that... Have you heard the story about Robin Williams and the fact that he was a 40K player? There's yeah. there's a kind of a legendary story circulating out there where this uh, he just showed up at a game store with his, what he called his gay Eldar and played a game with the guy. <laughs> and so he had several models and his uh, after he died, his daughter Zelda was posting pictures of them on Twitter saying, we have all this stuff that's dad's. We don't know what it is. Can anybody help us out with this? So he has. Right. And. Yeah. I saw that, and they were a lot of the old um, armor cast knights. Yeah. So that was kind of cool to t- check Titans that stuff, stuff out. Yeah. Yeah. Somebody linked to me recently some sports guy, and I'm sorry, I don't I don't follow sports, but it was a semi-famous sports guy. I don't know what sport it was, but it was American. Uh, posted on his Instagram that like the game was over, and he was going to get in a game of Saga which is, you know, a historical, you know, skirmish game. And I was like, wow, that's really cool. <laughs> and, of course, MMP is owned by, uh, what's his name, Rich? Uh, I don't know. Who, do, who owns ah, MMP? I put, I, put him on the, I put him on the spot. He doesn't know. Uh, Kurt Schilling. Really? Oh, really? I had no idea. Well, he's a pitcher, okay. right? Uh, yeah, okay, yeah. Didn't okay. Kurt Sorry, Schilling guys. get in trouble, like, scamming a bunch of other baseball players? Well, no, 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 no. Hold on. We'll get to his problems <laughs> in just a second. Uh, okay, guys, if you're just joining us now, you if you did not know, Kurt Schilling owns Multiman Publishing. And famously, when he was a baseball player, he traveled around. Uh, and I don't know how he did this pre-internet, but he did. He would uh, play ASL in the, in the towns that the baseball team went to. He would, his opponents, he would get them, like, free baseball tickets and backstage passes, whatever, blah, blah, blah. And then when the game was over, he'd go to their house or club and they'd play. Well, when, um, I guess, Avalon Hill had a event squad leader and whenever they went tits up, he bought it. He bought the rights and uh, continues to put it out. But, yeah, he owns Multiman Publishing. Wow, I did not know that. Uh, but, yeah, uh, he didn't scam, he didn't really scam people per se. I don't know. This is kind of controversial, but yeah. you know, you guys have figured it out. If he's listening, please don't post... sue us. That's just what I heard. <laughs> uh, um, and I'll try to post a link in the show notes. What he did was, I think he's in Rhode Island and he came up with an idea to make this video game. 
and this video game sounded amazing. He had all these famous people working on it, doing the design, writing it, blah, 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 and all this stuff. And um, I, I don't know if they kickstarted it or whatever. Anyway, it did come out, but then it completely failed. And, like, the state of Rhode Island ended up giving him, like, $13 million to make this game. And it, it went nowhere. So, so basically, the taxpayers of Rhode Island were on the hook for, like, $13 million for this failed venture. Mm. So, there you go. Um, it was separate from MMP. So, that's why they keep slowly producing stuff out. And they aren't owned by the state of Rhode Island. But, uh, yeah. That, that was a whole thing. But yeah, he owns MMP, and think about that every time he, you know, says something crazy about Obama or whatever, which <laughs> is like every every other week. <laughs> so uh, moving on, um, Surgical Strike, the Rebel Commandos, yeah. are available. Yeah, we're gonna get some special forces for the the Rebels in Star Wars Legion. The uh, the Imperials have already had. Uh, scout troops that were, you know, like the, 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 the scout biker guys, they actually get to get off their bikes and function as special forces, but now the Rebels have been announced as well. So uh, it's going to be interesting to see how the game changes as it expands. You know, the game's really only been out for, what, four months now, three or four months, and we've already had several new um, units actually you know, production and sale that are starting to change the game, you know, for the better, giving it more diversity. And some of the things we're seeing now with like the big emplaced guns and the special forces troopers and the Imperial guards, I think the game is just getting better and better with more. You're going to, you're going to not see everyone just playing the same armies. So good that they're announcing something else. I have no idea when this is going to come out. Um, seems like probably end of the year. I want to see Wookiees. Yeah, uh, I was kind of expecting to see Wookiees when they announced Rebel Commandos. So th- they'll be here. They're going to be okay. here. They're going to, you know, you roll a crit, you get to rip the, mo- the the arms off your opponent's mini. Yeah. So I'm imagining <laughs> like like all close combat, maybe kind of a, a wimpy gun. Yeah. And and two two hit points. Yeah. Or they could but have mints and they could just knock everybody back off the board. Yeah. <laughs> and, and man, every time I, I see this, I get so excited and then it gets so sad because I cannot find an opponent, you know, for this. It's like, you know, there are people in my area that are just like, eh, I'm going to put my stuff together. I'm, I'm going to paint it. And they never, yeah, I haven't, yes. And just looking at the production value, uh, I'm sorry, the production quality in it. It's just amazing. You know, it's FFG. Yep. The sculpts are nice. You know, the components are nice. There's a fantastic release schedule. I mean, nobody else is would do something like this. Put out a game and then, like, steadily put stuff out. Because I promise you, Games Workshop would have already delayed something three <laughs> months at this point, And it would be completely unbalanced, you know. The, the Empire or whoever would be the best ones right now. And we're just waiting on that, that next Rebel release you know, and they just—they're handling it really, really well, and I hope it does well. 
but you're right. I just see it doing kind of okay. Yeah. It's nowhere. It's nowhere near X-wing success. It feels like there's I mean, about eight of us in St. Louis that are playing this with some regularity. So. Wow, man! And you probably have more people living in the the city of St. Louis than my entire state. So, <laughs> well, the St. Louis know. area is about three million people. So. Yeah, I think I think uh, Mississippi is around three and a half million. I know more people live in the five boroughs of New York than my entire state. Oh, what so, doesn't surprise me. You know, <laughs> but, and I, I always thought that was small. And then you re- you read about like Montana. Montana <laughs> has like eighty people living in yeah. it. You know, and it's it's enormous. Yeah. But uh, so moving on, uh, we have an interview that we're going to toss to through the magic of the internet with Jamie Stegmeyer. From Stonemeyer Games, creators of uh, Scythe, among other things. And uh, yeah, we're going to toss to that. We hope you like what he has to say and you'll come back and listen to us. All right, with me and Richard is Jamie Stegmeyer from Stonemeyer Games. He decided he would come on our podcast and, we'd a- and answer questions that we ask him. So welcome to the show. Yeah, thank you so much for having me. I know Richard is a a huge huge fan of yours. Um, talks about you all the time, um, and you guys are apparently uh, neighbors or something. You didn't know? Close okay. enough. We're both WashU grads, right? We are. We are. Well, yeah, yeah undergrad for me. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, I, I went to UMSL for my undergrad and got my master's at WashU. So. Okay. Awesome. So, it, uh, I think the the biggest thing. Uh, you're known for right now would be scythe is that correct uh pro- yeah i think it depends on the person but yeah i, I would say that most people have played and bought and, and know scythe yeah and how did that project come about i know there was a particular i just remember like people posting like the pictures of the artwork online like hey the, you know this guy is doing this art and blah 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 look how cool it is and this and then it seems like about six or nine months later it's like wait a minute somebody's doing a board game based on this <laughs> yeah it was actually it was probably one of those posts or i know which one it was there, there's a site called kotaku that talks mostly about video games but one of their writers talks about artists in both video games and, and just random artists that he finds online and he posted a bunch of Jakob's art around 10 illustrations from this alternate history world of 1920 plus that Jakob had started to create and I saw it, and instantly I was like, oh, man, this is awesome. I would love to to design a game in this world. And so I reached out to Jakob to see if he would be interested in a collaboration and, and me essentially acquiring the tabletop rights to that world and designing a game based off of it. And much to my surprise and, and delight, he agreed. And that began that began the, the collaboration for, for what would be eventually become Scythe. That's interesting. I never knew that the art actually predated the game. Yeah. Oh, yeah. There was nothing. There were no mechanisms at all. It, it all came from the art. I tried to design a game that, that reflected what I was seeing in the art. Yeah. And it's got such a strong theme to it that I guess I guess it makes sense that, that it all started from the art. But I, did, I never did know that. So that is fascinating. One thing I like about Scythe that I, I think is interesting and is is the automa. Um, and I'd be curious to know how you came up with that. Um, I'm a big fan of the coin series and the coin series. They don't call it an automa, but they've got bots that allow you to play solitaire or let, let the 
the card take a faction and inside you have the same thing you have a deck of cards for people that don't know and it's even got different difficulty levels where you can play and um takes a little bit you know after your first time through you figure out pretty quickly and you can play the uh the automa as quick probably more quickly than an actual other player but i'm interested to know how you came up with that system because it's it's fascinating to me to think about how would you play the game if if all you could do was develop a deck of cards for it? That's a, that's a good question. I don't know if my answer will fully satisfy you, but I'll answer <laughs> it to the best of my ability. Um, during And it goes back a little bit. When I was running my first Kickstarter back in 2012 for a game called Viticulture, um, there was a guy who chimed in. He became a backer, and he chimed in to help out with the game. His name was Morten Monrod Peterson. He's a guy over in Denmark. And he, uh, he kind of helped out with like proofreading, some playtesting, stuff like that. And he ended up staying connected with the company. And he is a big solo gamer. And around, I would say maybe six months after the, the Viticulture Kickstarter, maybe a little bit later than that, Morton started telling me how much he, he, he loved these solo games, which I, I didn't know anything about. Um, I had never played a game solo other than like on my iPhone. Um, and Morton wrote an article on my blog about how big of a community there was for solo gamers. And he had some impressive stats. I was like, oh, wow, there's this whole audience of people I didn't even know about. Yeah. And he, uh, as it turned out, Morton kind of as for, for fun had started to develop. Um, it, 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 he had started to design some solo games and started to think about a solo system that he could apply to other games. And so I said, OK, Morton. I'm, I'm working on the expansion for Viticulture, what would become Tuscany. Do you want to give it a try? Do you want to design a solo version of Viticulture? And we'll, we'll put it in Tuscany. And so he gave it a shot. And I said, you know, don't worry about budget. Like, put, use whatever kind of components you need. I want it to be more than just like a little paragraph in the back of the rule book. I, I want cards, dice, whatever you need. And so he used cards to create this Altama system. And since then, he's applied it to, I think, every game that we've released. And, and so that's why, like, I... I, I'm not the, the designer for um, any of the Automa systems. That's all Morton and his team. He's ended up having a team. But I, I have heard wonderful things about it from solo gamers like you. Interesting. So is is his background, is he like a computer programmer? Because it almost seems like that's the type of logic that goes into this. You know, a computer, I, you have to tell it exactly what to do and you have to be specific about it. So, I think Morton's day job is a, as a project manager for... Um, developers and programmers. I think he has okay. probably a little bit of programming experience, but I, I think mostly he, he manages them. And even in the you know in like project management, a lot of that programming comes into play. So I think that's where it comes from. Okay. If you ever want to have him as a guest, I'm happy to refer you. He loves to talk about <laughs> stuff. Yeah, yeah that's interesting. Um, oh, sticking with Scythe, uh, Rise of is it Fenris? Yes. Okay, tell me about that, because this sounds like you're taking, you know, you've had a couple expansions for side. You had Invaders from Afar, mm -hmm. uh, you've, you've got the Airships expansion, which I haven't played that one yet, but those are both basically still the same game. It sounds like Rise of Fenris is taking the original game, but in a new direction. In a way, yeah. So the, the essence of the Rise of Fenris is that it is um, what what we consider the end of the Scythe story. So we have this trilogy of expansions. And so we went into it with the idea that we really wanted to tell a full story um, that kind of brought in other story elements of Scythe, but also had a full narrative arc within a, uh, a certain number of episodes, um, a campaign expansion, essentially. And so uh, 
I I worked with a designer named well he's, he wasn't really a designer then he he kind of designed a fan expansion for Psy, the fan campaign expansion, and I saw it I thought it was pretty cool and so I I asked this guy Ryan if we could work together to essentially start over from scratch from what he had designed but design it together design a campaign together, so it's this campaign expansion that has unlocking elements that you discover throughout the campaign. Every episode, though, is a, is pretty much standalone. Like, you don't have to remember rules from episode to episode. It's just basically the normal scythe rules plus a twist. And maybe there are some components that might overlap from episode to episode. Um, but over an eight-game arc, you end up telling telling this your own story of, of what happens in the world of scythe. And just to know, some people hear what I just said and they think, oh, it's a legacy expansion. Yeah, that was my and, next question. <laughs> And it's it, it's not legacy to me. I, I think they're different different definitions. But to me, legacy infers permanent changes that you can't undo, and there are, there's nothing permanent about the rise of Fenris. You can completely reset everything and run another campaign, or just mix and match different modules when you're done. Um, nothing permanent. No no legacy elements. But that discovery thing I just talked about, we've seen in other legacy game, or we've seen that in legacy games. Okay, and Charterstone is a legacy game, right? It is. Yeah, Charterstone okay. very much features permanence that you that you can't undo okay yeah have you played any legacy games uh yes my daughter and i are all about two-thirds of the way through pandemic legacy season two we played season one okay. together and loved it and i've got charterstone on my shelf i think that's going to be our next one because she really likes uh she likes legacy games so i think we're going to play that one next do kids when they play legacy games i don't have kids do they have fun with the uh the naming aspect yeah, she does. I mean, she's she's older. She's 17, so oh, she's okay. not a, a young kid. But yeah. yes, when we play Pandemic Legacy, she likes naming her character. And, and you know, we name the uh, – in, in Season 2, you get to name the, the ocean bases. I can't remember what they're called, but you get to name all those as well. So she does enjoy that. Awesome. That's neat. Yeah, I've heard good stories about parents playing uh, various legacy games, but especially since I've designed Charterstone, I've heard a lot of stories about parents and families playing it together. I love to hear that. Yeah. And I like how in Charterstone you can even you can buy a like a yeah I guess you can play it twice out of the box and then a recharge pack to play after that is that how it works? It's it's one campaign out of the box and then you flip over the board and you bring in the recharge pack which is oh, okay. much Got cheaper it. than the game or you can just after you finish making your village you can just continue to play games in that village post campaign so you don't necessarily yeah. need to buy anything else to keep playing it. Okay, that's another one that has a lot of solitaire players. A lot of people play Charterstone oh, yeah. solitaire so. Yeah, that's You're, that's all Morton. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> um, one another thing I wanted to ask you about, not about a specific game, but I know um, I, I only know this because I've seen your name on the uh, calendar up at Miniature Market. But I guess you do like a monthly uh, sort of like a seminar for designers, that type of thing. At Miniature Market, um, that might be a different Jamie. Oh, really? Okay. All right. Yeah. Yeah, I know. I, I know your. I follow your blog, and it's it's interesting. I see you talk about designing, and you talk a lot about Kickstarter, um, yeah. which Adam is a, a <laughs> vocal Kickstarter person, one way or the other. Um, <laughs> but yeah, it's interesting because um, yeah, I I know that you you talk a lot about that. You like to share your ideas. Um, yeah. Do you have? Do you get a lot of response? Is it, does your blog become a two-way thing? Do you get a lot of discussion, or is it just kind of this is my ideas on designing and Kickstarter, and you put it out there? Yeah, it's always been a conversation. Um, I, I, I've tried to put my thoughts and observations and ideas and mistakes and, and things that I've learned firsthand. I've tried to put it out there, 
and stay open to what other people have to say, whether they disagree or not. So there are some there's some entries that only have, you know, like five, 10 comments, but there are others that have dozens, maybe even hundreds of comments of people sharing their stories, their experiences, their thoughts, their ideas. Um, I'm always excited when when it generates that type of conversation and I can see different perspectives. Now, you you mentioned kickstarting Viticulture, correct? Yeah, back in 2012, that was my first tabletop game Kickstarter. How can you take me through that process? Like, uh, what you, how you decided to do Kickstarter? What were your, what was your minimum goal, and you know, stuff like that? Because we see so many of them done nowadays. Yeah, it, it seems to be about fifty-fifty, you know, as to whether it's successful or not, especially mm-hmm. from a non-established uh, company. Yes, and I was. Absolutely not established. <laughs> it uh, it's changed a lot since then. So so I started paying attention to Kickstarter right after it launched. I think I just happened to read an article about it, and I was fascinated by this idea that you could um, have these one-on-one direct interactions with all of your customers. Like you could know your customers' names. That was just amazing to me that you could have this type of relationship with your customers. And um, and so I followed it for a long time. And then I started to see tabletop game Kickstarters uh, be successful and, and in a very different way that they are now. Like now we see million dollar projects. Back then a successful campaign was like Eminent Domain raised maybe $40,000. Um, Crash Games had a campaign for a game called, I think, Rise. Uh, Tasty Minstrel had a few successful ones. Ryan Lockett, who's very successful now with Red Raven Games, he had, a, he had an early campaign. So I started to see these campaigns. And I was like, oh, you know, I've had this lifelong hobby of designing games and I'm fascinated by this platform, why not try to combine the two? And that's what, what Viticulture came out of. And uh, I, I knew very little. I definitely did a lot of research about Kickstarter, and I, I researched these other projects that, that had been successful or unsuccessful, but I did a ton of things wrong back then, um, things that I, I had to learn from firsthand, and things that if I had done them today, if, if any creator had done those things today, they would not be successful on Kickstarter unless they got tremendously lucky. In the end, uh, Viticulture had a campaign funding goal. It's either twenty-five thousand or thirty thousand. It's been a while, but uh, it ended up raising sixty-four thousand, I think, from nine hundred and forty backers or so. So back then, it, it actually was a moderately successful campaign. Um, maybe not to today's standards, but that's what that's what got me off the ground. Were you, Were you shocked by the amount of money that it raised? Um. Uh, yes, yeah. I, I went into it really not knowing if it would fund, like truly not knowing. I, I hedged my bets perhaps too many ways in the in the ways that I gathered like pre-funding for art. I won't go into detail there, but it just uh, like I, I really, truly did not know. And so on the day that it, it funded like maybe 10 days into the campaign and it was it was a very it, like very emotionally satisfying and overwhelming thing to have that happen. And then to see it to see it keep growing after that was amazing. It was also one of the it was a long campaign. It was like a 42 day campaign, which is way too long. And I, I really exhausted myself during it. So it was, as awesome as it was to see all this funding and whatnot, I got very physically sick. Like the day, mm-hmm. the moment the campaign ended, my body was like, no, you have not. You cannot continue to do this. Um, so I, I learned I learned that that was another mistake that I that I learned very early on. Did you find yourself like having to scramble to do stretch goals or anything like that, or did you just like, well, this is all I want to do. We'll just, I'm just going to ride this out. You know, you get what you get at this point. 
So I, actually, there, I, I almost made a mistake that probably would have sunk my company if I'd done this. Um, and actually, I did make the mistake. I just got lucky. I, I had a bunch of stretch goals. I, I think that project was one of the first projects to have social stretch goals. So I had goals based on like Facebook likes. I had goals based on number of backers. And then I had the tr more traditional thing, or now at least it's seen as traditional, of, um, of money. So I had all these different stretch goals planned. They were all on there. And one of them, so I had like way too many. It wasn't that I was scrambling. I had way too many. And one that I had was for metal coins, uh, which I think is a great add-on or a great deluxe component. But as a stretch goal, it's really expensive. It doesn't work with the economies of scale of stretch goals. And we barely did not reach it. But if we had reached it, it probably would have bankrupted <laughs> us. Like we probably would have funded it and shipped it, but that would have been it for the company at that point. So I, I got very lucky that we didn't quite meet that goal. Oh, like how – I'm not familiar with this Kickstarter at all, so, so I'm going to ask. Um, yeah. How quickly uh, – did you meet your goals at getting it out to people? Was for viticulture? Yes. Yeah, actually, I, I've been pretty fortunate, I think, with all of my delivery dates. So I ended up running seven tabletop game-related campaigns, and I think the the worst one was delivered a month late. Or I don't even try. I don't like to use the word late necessarily. It was a month after I estimated it would be delivered. All the other ones, like viticulture was right on time. Scythe was a little early. I think Euphoria was a little early. And so I, uh, I got pretty fortunate with that. I and I, yeah, yeah, that seemed to work out for me from the beginning. Okay. Have you had bad experiences with Kickstarters running much later than their estimated date? It's it's a favorite topic of mine on the podcast. <laughs> I, I follow unsuccessful ones and successful ones, you know, because it, in my opinion, kind of like where we're at now is a lot of companies just use it as we pre. We're, it's an elaborate pre-order scheme. You know, it, it really gets my goat when I see companies that I think are successful enough to assume the liability of creating the game and putting it out to market instead of asking me to prepay for it. Mm -hmm. So mm -hmm. we, we often cover stories about like, you know, uh, we covered one on the, the podcast, the, the, the past episode. It was a company. It was an RPG company. The guy was like two or three years late on it and finally just decided to give up and issue refunds. Okay. So, yeah, yeah we, I mean, we cover stuff like that. But, yeah, it's – and we're always surprised, like, hey, this, this game is coming out tomorrow. It's finally shipping to backers and turns out like it was funded like three years ago. And we're like, wow, okay. <laughs> just something like that. Now, continuing to talk to you about the business side of things, um, you uh, – I've seen several discussions about you and minimum advertised prices. Oh, interesting. Okay. Uh, I believe you have one. Uh, I think it's for Scythe for Amazon. You have a uh, an Amazon-only map. Am I correct in that? Yes, it's not just for Scythe. It's for any of our products sold on Amazon. Uh, we do have an Amazon-specific uh, map policy. Yeah. Can you tell me about what uh, what that policy is and why you chose to do that? Yeah, so I am a capitalist at heart. I love the free market. Um, but I started to see some disturbing things with Amazon. And Amazon is a platform that I actually really appreciate. We've, we've definitely sold a lot of games, not directly through Amazon, but through retailers who sell on Amazon. Amazon itself also buys m many of our games and sells them. But the, uh, the thing I started to see 
was that Amazon's pricing and Amazon's uh, in- environment is kind of creates this race to the bottom. So if like you're a retailer, you're selling on Amazon and you're selling a game for $56, there's a huge incentive for someone else to come along and say, I'm going to sell it for $55. And then there's not just two of you, there's probably 20 of you. And there's a bunch of people doing that who just go down a little bit lower than the next person, down and down and down. And I think that really devalues the game. Um, I think there's a nice sweet spot, and I've tried to hit that with our map policy, of letting customers buy something at a nice discount because I want to respect people's wallets. But at the same time, I I also want to um, respect the greater retailer atmosphere. Basically, I don't want it to just come down to being Amazon that only sells our games. I, I want a ton of different online and local retailers to be able to sell our games and be sustainable and be able to support them. And so I thought implementing this policy would um, help increase the chances that we'd sustain sustain that entire market for our games. Is this yeah. something that other uh, other designers, manufacturers are going along with as well? Because it, it almost seems like you've got to all be on board with this for it to work. Um, yeah, that's true. That it would be handy if other people did it. Um, I think I, I think my company has the only Amazon specific map policy. I, mm. There are other companies that have them as related to on various online vendors. Um, there are a couple of companies that have like their own twist on it, but no one else is Amazon specific like I am. Now, when I first heard about the policy, I thought maybe it was to help combat uh, board game piracy on uh, Amazon, as that's becoming a growing concern in the market. Um, fortunately, so w- one of like the key tenets of, of the games that I make is I always try to include as many cool components as possible. And when you do that, it's often really hard to copyright uh, to, to uh, copy them, uh, these unique components it's very easy to take a game like code names code names is one of the ones that was um that someone someone you know was selling copies of it uh that's very easy to do because it's just cardboard it's just a bunch of cards in a box but it's a lot harder to do that for scythe or for viticulture really for any of the games that we make i would say the easiest is maybe between two cities um but uh, to my knowledge we haven't seen any knockoffs of that but no that wasn't like that was maybe a, a tertiary motivation, but but not not nearly on the level of of the first reason I mentioned. Somebody listening right now is going to run out and do, and now do it. He, he said this one works good. Let's try it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Okay. Well, that that is really interesting. I never really thought about that, but yeah, the more you know fiddly bits and whatnot that you put in it, you're absolutely right. That does make it very hard. Or not cost-effective uh, right. to pirate. Yeah. Oh, yeah. That's absolutely right. Yeah. One of the things we've talked about on our podcast a few times is uh, digital board games. Mm-hmm. And it's just literally, you know, taking board games and transferring them over to digitally. We're seeing more and more of them on Steam. I know Scythe, uh, is it is it the final release that just came out, or is it still in beta on Steam? It's gone through two betas. It's in early access okay. right now. Early access, okay. Um but I'm, I'm curious to hear your thoughts on that because personally, I'm a fan of it. Uh, I like I like having – for one, it, it just lets me play the game more, uh, especially if you don't have anyone to play with. And with on a computer, there's no setup time or anything. Um, but I'm sure that it's probably not an easy process to turn a board game into an actual 
you know, especially like on Steam. If we're, if we're talking about Vassal or something like that, it's a little easier. Um, but yeah. something like what you're doing with Scythe is it's that's got to be a pretty complicated process. It's yeah, it's com- complicated. It's expensive. Uh, for a while, I resisted it for various reasons, but but for a large part because of those reasons, because it's so expensive. The first game that we actually considered was Viticulture, and then I got the, a quote from a company to to make a digital version of it, and it, it required like a hundred thousand uh, dollars upfront payment, uh, and that's money that I just yeah don't have, didn't have. Wow. Um, and things have changed a little bit since then where I think companies are a lot more open to back end deals. Um, but so what we've ended up doing with Scythe is that a company came to us and said, Hey, uh, we're looking for a very small investment. Why don't, why don't you pay for the music? We will handle the development and on the back end, we'll split it, uh, 80, 20, we'll split the revenue 80, 20. And I was like, okay, I, I love that kind of deal. Let's, let's do something like that. And so, um, that was that company was the Knights of Unity, one of the developers, or they're the core developer for Scythe. But they often they also even had uh, they had to bring in Asmodee Digital because uh, they ran out of money, and Asmodee Digital has a ton of money, and so they injected a ton of cash into it, and Asmodee Digital handled the the distribution. Um, so basically, I've I've licensed it to another company uh, so that I don't have to deal with any of the day-to-day stuff. I just am essentially a consultant on the project and the licensee of it. And we're doing something similar with uh, both Charterstone and Viticulture. But overall, yeah. I, I love the idea for the reasons that you mentioned and just the idea that any the, the more that I can get our games to the table, whether it's a digital table or a uh, table at someone's home, uh, the, the better, in my opinion. Sorry, no, is it, it, say, I'm sorry. Yeah, yeah I was going to say, is that you getting 20 or are you getting 80? Oh, I'm getting the 20. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. How does that work with Tabletop Simulator? Because I think there's a, a paid version of Scythe on TTS as well, whereas you know on, on some things on TTS are free, and there's there's paid versions as well. And I think Scythe has a paid version. And Viticulture as well. Oh, does it? Okay. Yeah, a bunch of our games are on Tabletopia and Tabletop Simulator. Uh, that's a it's a similar motivation, and really for both of them, it's not about the money. I, I don't ever. It, the the comparison between how much we're making in uh, the table the cardboard sales uh, is, is much much bigger. It's more about just giving people the the option of playing it with friends across the world, with these AI versions, the option of learning the game via a computer rather than going through a 32 page rule book. Um, it, it's I would say it's a lot more fan service and a way of inviting new fans to the game and hoping that some of them will buy the cardboard game than it is about making money. Who developed the modules for uh, Tabletop Simulator? Uh, for Tabletop Simulator, uh, it's their, their official modules created by Berserk Games, the company that runs and owns Tabletop Simulator. Uh, I think there's, oh. yeah, but their queue is pretty long right now, so I'm starting to try to bring in some other guys to make official modules because they're, they're way behind on, on the queue of our games to put in, in there. So they're like official tabletop simulator versions of the game. 
So I mentioned uh, my one daughter. We like to play Toadie the Legacy games together. I also have an eight-year-old girl that's about to turn nine in August. So she doesn't know it, but she's going to start playing Scythe with me because My Little Scythe is coming out. She's a huge My Little Pony fan, and (laughs) if if I'm a Scythe fan and she's a My Little Pony fan, so this is perfect. Um, (laughs) But I I just I have to know where this came from. I mean, I heard about this first a couple months ago. Was this your idea, or did someone else bring it? to you or what so it the the origin of my little side is that there's a there's a guy named hobie chow who lives up in vancouver canada he and his daughter he, he kind of he wanted to play scythe with his <laughs> daughter who was around six years old um but she wasn't really and she's a smart kid like she i think he said that she can now play scythe but she wasn't all that interested in the theme but she loves like your daughter she loves my little pony and so he worked with her as kind of a father-daughter project to design this fun My Little Pony-themed version of Scythe. And uh, he, he wasn't, like, pitching it to me or anything. He just made this purely for fun. And I think he told me about it. Uh, I didn't know him, but he kind of messaged me and said, hey, you know, I, I made this. Uh, I think it's pretty cool. I just wanted to show you. And I said, you know, that looks really that looks really neat. You should share that with other people. I bet other Scythe fans and their daughters and sons might have fun with that, too. And so he shared it, and it just spread like wildfire. I don't know if you saw it about a year ago, but it was it was all over social media, um, completely unrelated to my company. There was just his, <laughs> his thing that he shared out there. And it stayed around. It had so, so much staying power that eventually I was like, okay, I've got to check this out. I've got to play it for myself. And so he sent me a prototype, and I was just delighted by it. It, it Like he brought in – there's definitely like scythe in the game, but there's a lot of other new innovative stuff. And he takes a 32 side, 32 page scythe rulebook and pairs it down by streamlining everything to just eight pages, and really only five pages of that are rules. Uh, the other part is like setup and backstory. So, just a, a delightful game. We ended up publishing it. We we couldn't work with My Little Pony, but we decided to bring these uh, like cutesy versions of the animals that are in scythe into the world. When you play, do you think you'll play with the miniatures that are in the game, or do you think your daughter will want to play with uh, My Little Pony? Uh, you know, uh, I don't know if she has like little miniatures or dolls or things like that. She's got a few. Um, I imagine we'll probably play with the minis on the game. Uh, okay. We we both been into painting miniatures lately too. Uh-huh. So I'm we've yeah. been playing. She just got finished painting her uh, her stuffed fables minis, and I'm sure she's going to want to paint these too. Or do these come pre-painted? I can't remember. They are unpainted, but we actually okay. included a painting guide in the in the game because we wanted to encourage that type of thing of, of oh, that's great. fathers and daughters and, and, and mothers and sons who wanted to, to paint it together. So, yeah, they're, they're unpainted, but there's very detailed, full-color versions of the miniatures with their backstories in a, in a separate guide for painting. Oh, that sounds – yeah, she'll love that. Hopefully you should uh, share them with me when you're in maybe in the My Little Side Facebook group and they're complete. I'd, I'd love to see what they look like. I will do that, yeah. Awesome. So what does the future hold for Stonemire? Well, the immediate future holds um, a couple of games that we've talked about. The, uh, the Rise of Fenris and My Little Scythe will have a pre-release at Gen Con and then a release on August 17th. I currently am working on, like, our, our next, how many games? Three or four games, maybe three games, were all designed by other people. Um, and they're games that were submitted to us, and and I helped develop and and polish. And uh, so I've been working as a developer on these games for a while. So the next, we have a game that'll come out uh, later this year, then in early 2019, and then midway through 2019, 
those will all be games designed by other people, developed by me. And then um, after that, I have two games that I am working on designing. They're, one is epically big, and one is smaller and more focused, but uh, I'm still really excited about it. So I'm kind of, this is a way that my company has evolved a little bit. Instead of me just being the only designer for the company, we've brought in these other games from other designers and tried to bring them into the Stonemeyer brand. How many people work at Stonemeyer? I am um, I am the only full-time employee, so okay. I, I run the day-to-day operations. And then my co-founder, Alan, who's also lives here in St. Louis, he uh, he does a few specific things about, I think he works maybe five or ten hours a week. And then we have Morton in Denmark who, spend, who works a little bit a week. But mostly it's just me, and I outsource a ton of different tasks that I am not good enough to do myself. So a lot of uh, a lot of game designers we talk to, they they one of the common themes is they never had time to play anything because um, mm-hmm. they're all busy play testing and everything. But what do you like to play? Yeah, that is the opposite of me. I I, I do not think I could. I, part of it is because I, I I love playing games, but I don't think I could continue to learn as a designer if I didn't intentionally spend time playing other published games on a regular basis. So I host a weekly game night every Wednesday. Uh, last night we played Flamme Rouge. We played two games of Hanabi very unsuccessfully. We played what was the third game we played? Uh, played something else, but I think the, the main feature last night was Flamme Rouge. Um, I played Coimbra a lot or several times recently. I played Pioneer Days recently, and um, we I have a yeah I usually do a, a weekly game on a Wednesday and then usually a, a game day on Saturday or Sunday. Yeah. What about you guys? What have you played recently that you've really enjoyed? Well, like I said, for June, June was crazy for me, so I didn't get to play very much. But okay. this week, uh, our project is is coming to an end, and my family actually went out of town, so it's been like nothing but games all week for me. So nice. I've been playing Twilight Imperium. I uh, Speaking of Kickstarters, I just got Pavlov's House this week, so that's on my table right now. Uh, and, oh, I played Gloomhaven for the first time with a friend uh, yesterday. Mm-hmm. Um, what else have I been playing? Uh, I played Scythe again. I played with Yatama. Mm-hmm. And, uh, oh, and I've always got coin games going, so Falling Sky as well. Nice. That's a good array of games. Yeah. Do you, you play Twilight Imperium solo or with? No, no, no. Okay. We had, uh, I had five guys or four. We were going to have six, but we had four. Played five player. Uh, last Saturday, and two weeks ago, I played a six-player version of it. Okay, nice. What about you, Adam? Uh, I mostly do miniature games. Do you do do any of those at all? You know, I don't think I... That's probably one category that I have not stepped into. What would you recommend as a starter if I just wanted Uh, to play, like, one session of a miniature game and and learn something from it as a designer? Well, uh, well, learn something as a designer... I don't know. Usually what I would say if someone's like, you know, hey, I want to get into miniature game, I'd be like, well, the most popular one is, you know, going to be either Warhammer 40,000 or Age of Sigmar. Mm-hmm. Wherever you go in the world, <laughs> you, you can find a game right. of it. You know, you'll be able to find an opponent. It's, I mean, they're not that deep. They've gotten a lot better, but they're not that deep. But, uh, yeah. But there's like that. I'm an old school Battletech fan. Uh-huh. Uh, I dabble in historicals and stuff like that, so, you know. How many games do you play that require a ruler? Oof, most of the games <laughs> I play require a ruler. 
I, I, yeah, most of them do. Rulers, laser pointers, various uh, dice, you know. <laughs> that's, well, that's just it for me. I, I do love the table presence of those games. It, it, it just looks epic whenever I walk into a game store and see them on the table. Oh, yeah, on like a four-by-six table with oh, elaborate yeah. terrain and two fully painted armies. Yes, it's yeah. nice. Yeah. So, yeah, if you're in St. Louis, you could learn. Uh, Rich will teach you um, advanced squad leader. Absolutely, oh, yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. That's that's my. I love that game, and I'm I'm always uh, preaching the gospel of ASL. So, cool. we've got the ASL tournament coming up in a few weeks. The St. Louis ASL tournament. Oh yeah, where where is it? Uh, they hold it out in uh, Kirkwood every year. Okay. Yeah. I'm right always at, right fa- at 44 in Lindbergh. Okay. I'm always fascinated by it because it's the most complex game you can have on a board like that is like 18 inches by six inches. You know, uh-huh. it's yeah, incredibly complex. Will last like three hours on this tiny little board, and yeah. <laughs> well, uh, is there anything else you could think to ask, Rich, or anything? No, that's he's answered my questions. I appreciate your time, Jamie. Yeah, my pleasure. Thank you for uh, for joining for the for the chat. I'm glad we got to make it work this time. Yeah, yeah, uh, yeah. And, yeah, I found it incredibly uh, fascinating with the just the behind the scenes stuff on you know cost and especially like the digital development and like mm-hmm. how you did with um, tabletop simulator and stuff like that. Do you have any Vassal modules? I guess that would be another question to ask. We don't have Vassal. Someone's been trying to convince me to put something on Board Game Arena, and I'm open to it. I don't want to do any. I don't want to do the work myself. But if someone wants to do it and it wouldn't uh, get in the way of one of our other contracts, I'm open to it. Is that similar to Vassal? I haven't. I haven't played on Board Game Arena. I, I have not either. I haven't <laughs> played on Board Game Arena, but I know there are a lot of guys out there that. Uh, that will develop the Vassal modules, and basically all they'll do is they'll just go to you and say, can you give us the artwork so that we can get you know the board exactly right and everything like that. Right. Um, but, yeah, Vassal is great. Um, you know, speaking of ASL and, and coin games, which are probably the games that I play the most, but, uh, yeah, those are great on Vassal. Cool. Yeah, um, and, you know, basically Vassal is free, though, so I think they actually go to the companies and ask, like, hey, do you mind if we do this? You know, because we're putting, we're gonna put all the components up to play your game. They don't put the rule book up. That's like the thing. Although some companies have a downloadable rule book, right? But yeah, generally, generally you're supposed to you buy the game and then you you're free to play it online. Some companies forbid it, and other companies embrace it. Yeah, I think it's fascinating. Yeah. The interface is a little oomph for me, but you know, <laughs> you get used to it. Yeah, yeah, that I understand. I've kind of learned along the way that if I don't enable that type of thing, someone will do it without telling me. And so it's going to happen either way. I'd rather know about it and and uh, be a part of the process in some way rather than having it be done behind my back. Sure. That's a good attitude to have. Like <laughs> yeah. yeah. Well, Jamie, we really appreciate you coming on. And I know a lot of people are very excited. <laughs> We're very excited to have you come on the show. Uh, Rich was a huge fan. I wanted to learn all I could about it. Uh, I have a very envious friend that could not believe who I was interviewing tonight. And, yeah, it's just been great. Cool. And uh, I'm always, always interested in learning about the background of things, like how the Kickstarter works and the digital development and the price breaks and all this stuff. And, yeah, so it's been great. Thank you so much for coming on and being very patient with us as we scheduled this thing. So 
My Thank pleasure. You. Yeah, absolutely. And uh, I'm willing to bet we'll have you on later for yeah. sure. I'm happy. If you ever want the inside scoop, I'm I'm happy to to divulge any any of the secrets that go on behind the scenes. <laughs> well, and thank you I very much. Gonna, <laughs> I was going to mention to the listeners, uh, Scythe is currently on Steam as of this recording. It's uh, 19.95 and on Steam, and it is in early access. So there you go. That's right. All right. Well, we uh, certainly appreciate it. We'll talk to you guys later. Thank All right, you. guys. Have a good night. Thank you. And we're back. It's an amazing, amazing interview. Great guy. And uh, we, you know, we had previously recorded it, and I gave him a little bit of a scare when I tweeted out that we were, you know, putting it on there. And he was like, "Wait, what? We have an interview today? I have a scheduling conflict." I'm like, "No, no, no, no. It was that one. We we already did. It's okay, man. Yeah, we already did this." I was one. glad You're we good. got a chance to talk to him, and I've been playing more side since I talked to him, just because it reminded me of how much I like the game. And uh, yeah, it's a good interview, though. I enjoyed it. I think I'm gonna hop on digital scythe. That's gonna be my way of playing it because I have not played it yet. Yeah. So. Well, if you do that, let me know because I, I haven't played any multiplayer. Um, I don't know if it's, uh, I don't know if you have to play it live or you can play it, you know, asynchronously or what. But let me know if you if you do get on that on Steam. Uh, the next thing we have, we go to news now, and the first thing is a reprint, a second edition of Maze of the Blue Medusa. And this is a thing done for um, Dungeon Crawl Classics, which I, I love DCC. Uh, not that I played it, I just love the fact that it exists and everything about it. I own a ton of it, but I have not actually sit down and played it. I like the fact that it's like uh, you could die. To me, it's kind of like Fantasy Traveler, only you're not dying in character creation. You're dying a lot like in the game, and I, I really dig that. It, it doesn't coddle you, you know? There's risk involved but this is like a really popular uh module i guess it's not really a module it's a setting and i first figured this out in uh fooling around with like uh, lamentations of uh, the flame princess they will put out books and it's just a setting you can take this and it gives you like well here you have to come out with why your players are in the maze and what their goal will be. Past that, it was like, here's everything about the maze. Like, this, it does this, these are the bad guys, you know, this is going to happen when you get to this point, and blah, blah, blah. And I really love the production value for it, too. It's 50 bucks for a uh, hardcover, plus you get a PDF. And it, had, it was an any Award nominee for Best Cartography and Product of the Year. So, yeah, I like how... The quote is, it kicks Wizards of the Coast books ass in every department, and it's made by three people. So, there you go. Have you played any of these throwback modules? I haven't. I just enjoy reading yeah. them. Yeah. You know, and it, it it it's everything that, you know, D&D used to be. And so, I, for me, it that's really exciting, you know, to, to read that kind of stuff and go, wow, okay, yeah, this reminds me of this module or blah, 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 and... And whatnot, and um, yeah. But other than that, you know, I've never actually played it. Yeah, I'm kind of the I mean, that's same just... way. I haven't, I haven't bought any of these, but not this one in particular. But these type of throwback books, you know, I've spent many minutes up at the game store flipping through them and looking at them and enjoying the nostalgia. But I don't know how much. I would actually enjoy playing the old style D&D anymore. You know, RPGs have moved on to a more 
um, a less crunchy, more storytelling type vibe, which is more in line with what I like to do. So um, I, I could That's see playing true. a one shot out of this, but I'm not sure that that I would get out of this more than nostalgia. But for some people, they're like, yeah, this is what I yep. want. You know, fuck Wizards of the Coast. <laughs> I want this. This is how it was. Yeah. This is how it is. This is real yep. role playing. I want to start my wizard with one hit point. <laughs> <laughs> and that's cool. And, you know, places like, uh, you, you know, um, Lamentations of the Flame Princess, which I mentioned, they have their own niche you know they're bloody they're sexy you know bad things happen in it scary things happen in it and they have their following and they have that niche and so yeah it's it's kind of for stuff like that so moving on um if you didn't know the monster apocalypse rules are available right now for free even you can wander on over to the privateer press's website and download them and, uh, yeah, uh, not interested in this game, but yay for them for doing something with their IP that they created. I know with the new Godzilla movie coming out, you know, there's undoubtedly going to be some interest. I do like the fact that it is not a collectible miniature game anymore, although it does kind of suck that you have to actually put this stuff together and paint it. But whatever. So, you know, that's kind of a thing. So rules are out. Take a look at it. Free is good. Yeah, I know. Free is always good especially in gaming. So uh, the next thing I was ecstatic to to read about, cool mini or not, is teaming up with Warner Brothers to produce a Wacky Races board game. Did you guys ever watch Wacky Races? I'm I never watched bit. Wacky Races, but I mean, I'm looking at the art here and I'm remembering all of these characters and everything, you know, Captain Caveman Smedley? and Smedley. Is that the name of the dog? I thought so. Something like that. Yeah, that sounds right. You know, it's funny because that that dog that Smedley that he does that laugh and Motley. I remember, <laughs> yeah, a long time yeah, ago, yeah. my wife did that laugh for whatever reason. I'm like, you sound like that cartoon dog, and she had no idea what I was talking <laughs> about. So I did explain the whole thing to her. <laughs> well, uh, I know Wacky Races. I think actually took place like in the late '60s or or something. But it was big on reruns in the eighties. Yeah, yeah. Looking at looking at this, it was it was in nineteen sixty eight was when the original T V series. Oh really? But okay. My my brother and I watched it on USA's Cartoon Express in the like mid to late eighties. So we re- you know, we really dug this. We thought it was like really cool. It's like um the Slag Brothers, uh the gruesome twosome Professor Pat Pending, uh, Red Max, Penelope Pitstop was the only female. Um, the Ant Hill Mob, Lazy Luke, Rufus Roughcut. Uh, yeah, that was just some of them that actually do. Oh, yeah, Dirk Dastardly, you know, well, that's who, and Muttley. Yeah, that's yes. yeah. Dirk Dastardly and Muttley. So, yeah, I was, I was really excited at this, and I did just kind of want to comment, you know, Cool Mini or Not loves Kickstarters, but apparently they're not kickstarting this, and I can only assume, you know, they came to Warner Brothers and like, well, look, if you trust us with your IP, you know, Warner Brothers was like, look, you know, you're not going to kickstart this shit. You have to pony up for it and pay for it, is the only thing I could think of. Is yeah, but there's no Kickstarter for this. Yeah, it will just be put out. I'll wait till a gameplay video just, comes out on this one. Uh, it's gonna be. I'll probably pick it up at launch 
at a discount, of course, <laughs> but you know, from from a particular whatever place, maybe you know, I, maybe my local game store can get it, but whatever. But uh, yeah, I I'm really excited, and I hope to play it with my brother because we we really dug the show. So uh, moving on, I didn't know this was a thing, but it is now no longer a thing. Wizards of the Coast has updated alcohol and age restriction policies. Uh, did you guys know that you could not drink in Magic anywhere? I had nope. no idea, but I don't know that it's ever come up. I mean, the, I'm trying to think. I mean, when I go to, to Game Night or Miniature Market and I see people playing all games, including Magic, I mean, people just walk in with cups. Who knows what's in those cups? That's that's true, but apparently, it it was a thing where um, if you were selling Magic the Gathering, oh, okay, and and um, like doing official tournaments and blah blah blah, whatever, you were not allowed to sell alcohol in the same thing, and they and they had some other restrictions in in place. They have since rescinded that. And it's no longer prohibited. And they have also made it where uh, vendors can run 21 and up events and 14 and below events. Hmm. So just kind of a thing uh, that that is a thing. And it caused my local gaming store has been kind of sitting on the fence because they also own like... uh, they have their like their own a restaurant chain and stuff like that anyway, and they've been kind of sitting on the fence on doing a brew pub. But uh, after they did that, they they decided to do it. They went ahead and got their material to do a license and stuff like that. Which in, I'm here to tell you, in Mississippi is a pain in the ass. I want to say to get a license uh, to serve alcohol, it's like five grand a year, just up front. And you have to purchase your stuff through the state. Oof. So yeah, there, there's a lot of red tape, and this, and Mississippi makes a lot of money that way, in in the name of restrictions. But yeah, that's that's going down, and I'm excited because they're going to go to a bigger building. We'll have more space because they've already outgrown the space. It becomes a problem like when they do their 40k tournaments, so they have like I don't know 14, 16 people. And, you know, each one of those, that's, okay, if they have 16 people, that's eight four-by-six tables. So that can that takes up a lot of space. And then you have, like, 20 people coming in that are wanting to play Magic on top of the people that are coming in to want to buy comic books. You know, the, it just gets to be really cramped in there. And so they're like, okay, we've outgrown it, but we've signed a lease, so we're going to work on that. And, uh, yeah, they're going to move to a bigger thing, and I'm excited because they're going to do other stuff. Plus sell beer, and that's cool. <laughs> so moving on, there is Relic Knight's 2nd Edition. This is coming from Ninja Division. And um, I always thought Relic Knight's was interesting because it's basically kind of like cheesecake girls, like half-naked girls on like mechs and like little cutesy mascots with them. That's kind of like the way it's sold, is you, you'll have like this half-naked chick in a robot with a little robot beside her and yeah you kind of battle it out it's kind of like an anime video game type thing on i think a three by three thing and uh yeah 
I think some people played it locally, but I've never actually seen it played. I knew some people, well, I'll say they owned stuff for it, but I've never actually seen it played. So there will be a, um, not going to kickstart this because, you know, Ninja Division got in a little trouble for um, kickstarting things, you know, or at least they raised the ire of the people that uh, bought from them. And, uh, yeah, Uh, what sucks is, when I want to kind of spread the word of this locally, I cannot find a single place that actually sells the figures. Like, as of this podcast, I'm on their website now, ninjadivision.com. I, like, click on Relic Knights, and all it tells me about is, like, okay, they announced second edition, and they're going to be at Gen Con. That's it. So I can't buy any of the miniatures direct from them, I, if I search for it, I'm only seeing, like, close-out miniatures uh, on, like, Miniature Market and stuff like that. So, I don't know what they're doing. Maybe they're going to redo all of it. But, yeah, as of right now, you can't get anything for it, but there's a second edition coming. So, there you go. Moving on, there's yet another collectible card game enters a crowded market. The Transformers card game is coming. And I can't, first of all, can't believe it's Wizards of the Coast. Wizards of the Coast is teaming up with Hasbro, which owns Wizards of the Coast. So really, it's just Hasbro (laughs) saying, we're making Wizards of the Coast make a game for us. Oh, wow. I didn't even realize that. You're right. Yeah. Oh, my gosh. So, yeah, that's weird. It's like, hey, I'm teaming up with my invisible pal to, to do this. It's like you're not teaming up. You're literally the same fucking company. Yep. Wow. Okay. Yeah. I didn't realize. It's that. like so. Next time I tell my daughter to go do the dishes, I'll say we're teaming up to clean the kitchen. <laughs> <laughs> That's good. That's very good. Yeah. So okay. And uh, yeah. Huh? Uh, I wonder like what the mechanic will be because they could get close to magic without being sued. Because what are they going to sue themselves? Yeah. Right. Yeah. So wait, will this wait. be? Yeah. It, yeah. Are you going to have your, uh, kind of your hero? It's, yeah, okay. I could see how this would go together with, uh, I'm going to have this, this particular transformer. I'm going to attach all this equipment to it and send it out to battle. Yeah. Yeah, in, th- in that sense, it would be like Pokemon. Yeah. You know, because that's, that's the way Pokemon plays. I don't know, though. Yeah, I don't so, know. I don't yeah. know if this is just speculation, but I do like the idea of the two-sided card. So, you know, different abilities depending on which side is face up. And it sounds interesting. Um, I'm not I'm not really into collectible card games just because I don't I don't like to gamble when I buy game pieces. Uh, but sounds good. Although you say that and I will say and I'll try to link this in the <laughs> show notes. I think a Magic the Gathering uh, Black Lotus sold for $87,000 this week. <laughs> yeah, I saw this that. This week or last week. Yeah. It's like, Dad, gum. It's like, who has eighty-seven grand that would want a Magic card? <laughs> Kurt Schilling. I guess you could... Yeah, it could be. Well, I don't know. You got trouble. But yes, it could be. Um, I, you know, I, maybe you could think of it as an investment. I read a great article on like, hey, when Bitcoin was so big, the article was don't buy Bitcoin, buy classic magic cards. You know, because they, they go up in value. They go up slowly, but they constantly go up in value. They never devalue. 
So, so I don't know. It's there's a little bit of a, a a through line there between Magic the Gathering and Bitcoin, as I recall, because there was a website called Mount Gox that was a a, a Bitcoin trader. You remember that? Yeah, this sounds familiar. Well, so originally it was Mount Gox was Magic the Gathering online exchange was a uh, marketplace. Oh. And I, I I don't know anything more about it other than that, but I know that there was kind of a there uh, related uh, spheres of of internetness. So, never mind. I just that came to uh, mind. Yeah, I I've heard. I had heard that, too, because I remember somebody, when I was getting into Magic Online, was like, well, go to this website. And I'm like, what does that mean? And they're like, well, it used to do this, now it's this, and yeah, okay. So, uh, moving on, uh, War, Clater, War Cradle has a volunteer program, so you can actually demo their games and stuff like that. I The main reason why I tossed this on here is I don't really think of a lot of companies doing this anymore for whatever reason. Uh, Games Workshop killed their Outrider program years and years ago. And recently, in the past five years, um, Privateer Press killed their uh, Press Ganger program. So I'm not really seeing a lot of companies doing this anymore. But to me, it's a really good idea to kind of, like, get your name out there. And I, you know, the, you, the kids will get credit for demoing uh, your game in the store and running tournaments and, and stuff like that. I just think it's kind of a win-win thing. And just in exchange, they usually either get free product and or an opportunity to buy like limited edition stuff that won't be for sale to the general public. So mm-hmm. I and I hope Dystopian Wars actually grows. I, I'm lucky enough that I have stuff and I know people in my area have stuff, so I'll actually get to see it played. Yeah, this touches on what we talked about before. I mean, as a company, you have to have a plan for getting some sort of critical mass. Otherwise, you know, it's just you're not going to be able to sell the product. And for a lot of these companies, the plan is to start with a very popular intellectual property. But if that's not what you're doing, you've got to have some other plan. Mm-hmm. And this is a great way to do it, in my opinion. I mean, if you can get people for, you know, just for some discounts or whatever to do your marketing for you. It's it's win win, you know. They get people to play with, they get uh, discounts on the product, and you sell more stuff. You have to really vet those people, though, because Absolutely. if you get somebody yeah. who's who's a creep or, or <laughs> just not a good, uh, uh, you know, not a good face for your your company, then that's not so great. Yeah, that is true, and maybe that's why people or getting away from it, maybe they're like, well, it opens us up for a liability or something. Mm-hmm. I don't yeah, know. Yeah, I talked to a guy uh, at a, it was at a homeschool convention a couple weeks ago, and he was selling a, a historical game there. It teaches kids history, and it's pretty fun. I bought, you know, some some stuff on it, and I played it, and I told him I talked might might even end up interviewing for the podcast, blah blah. blah. But he has a similar sort of, you know, uh, ambassador program where he's he's trying to get his game out there, and he's offering people some some free stuff to help organize tournaments and stuff like that. But that seems like the way to go. Again, like you said, if, if you get the right person, it could be disastrous. Yeah. Hmm. I, I will say, you know, even for big legitimate companies like uh, Wizards of the Coast, it was uh, just a couple of years ago in Alabama 
there was a guy running fake Magic the Gathering stuff uh, just to get free product, to scam product from Wizards of the Coast, including um, promos, but actual, like, um, boxes. Because they get reimbursed. Like, if they run a, run a thing and they give away a box as a prize, Wizards of the Coast will reimburse them either the cost of that box or for a box. But, yeah, the guy over there was just running a scam to do it so yeah you gotta you can't trust anybody these <laughs> days dadgummit so uh moving on who is going to buy Asmodee who do you think who's gonna buy it Games Workshop you think they'll buy it it's possible oh so yeah I mean Asmodee they were did Asmodee own Fantasy Flight Games or I know they were connected. I think they do uh, now, don't they? And then Fantasy well, Flight just broke with Games Workshop, what, last year? Oh, so Fantasy Flight, Flat Hat, Space Cowboys, Catan Studio, Days of Wonder, Heidelbar, I have no idea what that is, and Z-Man. Fantasy Flight merged with Asmodee in 2014. Okay. So, so there's that. And the current thing, there are two business units formed out of Asmodee North America, which will be Asmodee North American Publishing and Asmodee North American Division, which are two separate people. And yeah, the second article that yeah I'll post in, in the show notes is they're set to be sold by end of, uh, of the year. Yeah, and, and with, just this with afternoon, a, a few hours ago, the CEO announced that he was going to step down. Right. So it was like two, you know, one shoe hitting and then the other within a couple of days there. Well, see, yeah, even then, looking at this, it's like, you know, they're just restructuring. I don't know who's going to buy them, and that's kind of a thing. Honestly, I don't, yeah, I don't see Games Workshop buying them. I was kind of joking, but... The fact that I, I figure some... What would be the next big uh, board game company you could think of? If not Asmodee, if not Fantasy Flight, what's the next biggest board game company? Hasbro. Oh, Hasbro. <laughs> mm. Yeah. That's yeah. true. And Hasbro. Well, we had could, kind of joked about Disney. Yeah, yeah that's what I was I had. Next is Disney. FFG already has the Star Wars license, so maybe Disney wants to consolidate there it's going to be big news whoever picks them up because that's i mean yeah you're right that's the star wars yeah. ip among, among other things uh i mean that's a FG lot she has a of lot games. of good ips yeah i mean they've got game of, of thrones they've got star wars they've got legends of five rings um you know those are big ips then they've got some other big games too like twilight imperium and and again, we were just talking about how great they were run. Yeah. You know, with the fact that you had stuff coming out like it's supposed to, it's all nice and balanced, it's well done. I mean, come on, X Wing is the biggest tabletop game in yep. the world. And whoever buys this is going to get that. And hopefully won't screw it hopefully up. Hopefully they won't, especially since X Wing is currently transitioning to X Wing two. So Yeah, I heard I did hear uh today that um the uh, points were announced, and there was a lot of weeping and gnashing of teeth. The nice thing that they're doing with X-Wing 2, though, is they are they're going to a 100% online rollbook, which means they can change oh, them yeah. anytime they want. They That's can balance right, any way they doing, want to. 
they're getting away from those dumb cards. Right. And Everything's going to be, be on app based. App on uh-huh. your, yes, on your app. And so you're right. They can just adjust it on the yeah. fly. I really think that's a really cool yeah. idea. And honestly, this is 2018. That's the way things should yeah. be. You know. So uh, the next thing we had was Weird Games has announced Malifaux Third Edition, and I was like, "Damn it! I just bought <laughs> all the Second Edition books." Uh, I mean, I bought them secondhand, so I'm not going to be out that much money, but it's still annoying to me. But, um, yeah, this is the thing. Uh, Malifaux has taken off in my area. Uh, it's a great little game. You play with less than 10 figures per side on a either 3x3 three three or 4x4. Four four. I can't remember. I think 3x3 three three is the area that you play on. Yeah, the only thing I don't like about it is just the Weird West setting. I just, I've just never been attracted <laughs> to that particular Western fantasy setting. So, yeah. Anyway, that is coming. So the next thing we had was GMT Games and Playdeck have formed a digital games partnership. Yeah. This was big news. This is big news, and it's, it's something that... You know, we interviewed uh, Volca a couple weeks ago, or a few weeks ago. I think it was on the podcast two weeks ago. But he, uh, you know, listening back and thinking about some of the questions we asked him about digital games, and you know, especially with Vassal. And I think uh, obviously he knew this was coming, and I, I think he was probably waiting for the announcement. He couldn't really say anything, but yeah, to have GMT, who is already works wonderfully with Vassal. Now they're in a full partnership with uh, with Playdeck to develop digital versions of their games. And for those of you who don't know, uh, there's a game called Twilight Struggle. It's an amazing Cold War game. Um, I have never played the cardboard version of it. It's very fiddly, lots of little bits to keep track of. And the uh, the digital version of the game is so perfect that I just I don't have any desire to play it on cardboard. I play it multiplayer all the time with people, um, but we always play it digitally. And now they haven't they haven't announced specific games yet, but they're talking about possibly uh, Imperial Struggle, which is the spiritual successor to Twilight Struggle, except that it happens a couple hundred years earlier, and the coin games, which I've been saying for a long time really lead themselves to to digital in a great way so i love the coin and games. labyrinth yeah labyrinth yeah which is not a coin game but it's similar coin games so um yeah i'm really looking forward to this because i will play them even more digitally and i i will continue to play them obviously face to face is best um but i already play a lot of coin games on vassal right now i've got Right now, I've got a Falling Sky game going. I play a lot of Colonial Twilight on Vassal. Um, they're just they they work so well on Vassal, and I hope that they work even better with a full digital version on Playdeck. Not on Playdeck, but yeah. you know what I mean. I'm excited, and you know the other thing is like GMT does everything so perfectly. I know it makes me look at at other companies and go, "Can you get your shit together?" <laughs> It's like, look at GMT. Look at all the great things they're doing. You know, they're perfect. You know, they're putting stuff, they put out quality product. You know, they have a great P500 system, you know, and, and all the stuff. And they're even doing their digital stuff good. Yeah. And so when I, when I look at other companies, I just get mad. I'm like, come on. If they can do it, you can do it. And they're doing it without kickstarting anything. Damn yep. it. <laughs> yeah. They, they've got the, uh, the P500 system, which is, you know, the benefits of Kickstarter without the drawbacks. 
It's a it's a perfect order system. They put it out there, say, hey, if 500 of you want this, then we will print it. Still good. <laughs> so the next thing I had, uh, as of this podcast, I don't have a link to show because this was literally just two sentences that uh, Catalyst Games put out. So by the next podcast, I hope to have a report on this or whatever. But anyway, Catalyst Games announced, hey, what we're doing for Gen Con this year for Battletech is we are doing a mega-sized demo of Battletech with 8-inch tall figures played on a 10 by 10 battle map. <laughs> and it, it people have lost their mind because they, they showed the figures... They look awesome, and we're like, "Hello, can we can we get a new scale BattleTech, please? Can we start, you know, with this this scale, where you have eight inch tall mechs and maybe a uh, twenty eight or fifteen millimeter uh, infantry, and we could just do like a bunch of infantry and one battle mech versus that? That would be so awesome. So can we please do instead this? of having train to create, you just play in your backyard." <laughs> yeah, you could. Or honestly, at that scale, you would kind of use 40K terrain. Kind of. It just depends. If you're using 28mm infantry, you could use your uh, 40K terrain. But I don't know how how the uh, mechs would scale. Eight inches tall? It really... That's like, the old, yeah, it's it like re- the old G.I. Joe figures. Yeah, <laughs> it, it really... Well, of course, that's the mech. So, yeah, I would think that it, at 8 inches tall, infantry would need to be about 15, 10 or 15 millimeter. So you could use your Flames of War terrain. It would work perfectly if you use 15 millimeter. But I don't know. I, they may not do anything with this. This may just be some one shot where they just 3D printed a bunch of, you know, mechs and, and whatever. But I hope they, like, see me tweeting at them and hear this podcast and whatever and realize that we would love a new scale for Battletech. Okay. You know, you don't have to get crazy. Just give us a few mechs and just make the infantry figures. Because there used to be one called Battle Troops. It was a straight-up just board game. No figures were made for it. Uh, it was just cardboard cutouts. But it was like infantry versus infantry. And I know at cons and stuff, people would bring in the big uh, model kit uh, mechs that they made and try and put them into the game. And it was a lot of fun. I don't know. Okay. I just think it would be really cool. I'm going to jump in here a little bit. So uh, yeah. the Atlas, uh, which is uh, probably the tallest mech, says it's 11 to 12 meters, which translates to 33 feet, 35 feet, something like that. So then okay. um, if we take that in, what's what's an eighth of 34? Four, thereabouts? Yeah, I'm sorry, I'm losing the math. I'm thinking about the scale of whether, what scale of infantry would work for the, the eight-inch tall mech. So... Yeah, I know. Like, okay, like re- re- yeah, I know. Regular battle mechs are six millimeter. I think is what they're supposed to be. Okay. So if that a couple helps, inches tall, twenty four, twenty four millimeter scale. Then is that that's you had said twenty eight? So I mean that would kind of. Yeah, yeah. You could do twenty fives then. Yeah, for sure. 
it's it's doable. There is terrain available for that scale, and it would look great. Well, I mean, if you're going to do combined just, arms with uh, with mechs and tanks and and infantry, you could just yeah do the throw in your um, standard you know um, games workshop figures. Yeah, and see, all that sounds awesome. Yes, please do that, uh-huh. please. <laughs> But I, yeah, I'm just, I, I don't know. It, it'll probably be they may end up selling just these these miniatures because they have to be losing some money because everybody I know 3D prints mechs just to put on their desk and stuff that are like a foot tall or whatever, <laughs> you know, it, you know, in obvious copyright violations. So they have, to, you know, it seems to me they could make some money if they'd make their own stuff. Yeah. But I don't know. Moving on to uh, Dungeons and Doggies. And, of course, this will be over by the time you hear this. Sorry, because it's got 15 hours to go as of, as of the time I talk. <laughs> I love how they just wanted, like, $19,655. Yeah. And, again, why not just twenty or why not nineteen? <laughs> but whatever. As of this podcast, they have raised almost half a million dollars. But they are really cute. <laughs> for uh, fantasy miniature dogs, <laughs> um, and they they look just awesome. There's like Cornelius, the Golden Retriever Wizard, Nightingale, the Pomeranian Monk, Tedric, the Chihuahua Rogue, which looks fantastic. Uh, Montague, the Cocker Spaniel Bard. Um, there's a Corgi in there that looks awesome. I don't know what he what is he. Let's see. Does it say? Well, let's see. There is a. St. Bernard Cleric, a Husky Paladin, a Cattle Dog Ranger. So that's like a blue healer. Corgi Warlock. I guess. Oh, he's a Warlock. Awesome. A French Bulldog Fighter, a Dotson Sorcerer. Nice. Uh, A Beagle Barbarian. uh, Yeah, the Corgi Warlock. He's Tobias, the Corgi Warlock. That's awesome. Why? Okay, yeah, they... Why not like a necromancer or something? That would be really cool. Because I mean, come on, dogs like dig up bones, so <laughs> seems to be that would be natural. Uh, I really thought this was cool. The only thing that stopped me was like, uh, it's a UK thing. The and like the only it was like straight up, you just twenty seven pounds, thirty five dollars. You get all twelve miniatures, um, and uh, a PDF. A guide, art prints, blah blah blah. I mean, it's you get pretty good value for thirty-five bucks, but yeah, that just it just kind of stopped me because it was from over there. Because I'm willing to bet it's thirty-five dollars, and I'm gonna probably pay twelve or fifteen more pounds to um, to ship it. So it's probably gonna be closer to fifty pounds total, and so eh. I figure these these will get made, and that's the other thing is I don't want them all. I would buy just a couple of them. I really want like two or three of them, and that's it. Yeah, so and, uh, I've currently got a and D game going, and I play a monk. I would love to just set this Pomeranian monk on the board and just like not even say anything, you know? My it just like just yeah, that's my character. Why? <laughs> <laughs> Well, I mean, not to mention you could just polymorph yeah. into the, you know, into this. Like, aha, I know that. <laughs> anyway, uh, moving on. I this came out of nowhere, and I was surprised. Uh, Trogdor, the board game. Are you guys familiar with Trogdor? Oh, absolutely. I, I, no. I like you though. 
I don't know why we're talking about him in 2018. <laughs> I, this was like the biggest thing on the internet, like in the year 2000. Yeah, Strong Bad. He was yeah. a he was yeah. a he was a cartoon character created by a cartoon character. Aha! Uh-huh. All right. Yeah, and you know it had a little catchy theme song, and you know it was just ridiculous. It was dumb, and whatever. I was surprised as hell to find out that there's going to be a board game based on Trogdor. I'm like, in 2018. I honestly had to go, what year is this? You know? And what kills me is like, as of this podcast, they wanted 75 grand for this thing. (laughs) They have made $861,000 with 15 days left to go. So this could easily go over a million bucks. So for this, and it looks like, this is created by the guy that created Homestar Runner, I'm guessing. I mean, it's not like Surely. someone went to him and said, hey, can I you know, buy your IP from you or anything that you haven't been using in 14 years? Uh, yeah, I, I, I don't know where this came from. Um, I have no desire to buy it, but if one of my friends bought it, sure, I'd play it with them. <laughs> Yeah, I agree. To me, looking at the components, it's not worth forty bucks. I know. It really... This look this looks like a, a twenty dollar game. Looks like demo. Tops. I mean the the pictures look like a demo. Like a you know just a few cardboard tiles and some little wooden minis. That's it. Yeah. Yes. I mean there are no like resin miniatures, <laughs> nothing, you know, for forty bucks. And yeah. But hey, more power to you. People wanted jumped on this for nostalgia there you go uh i'll i'll definitely link the song in the show notes because it's really catchy a way back in 2000 a friend of mine had that song the full song as his answering machine greeting (laughs) yeah kids back when that's how long ago this was when people had answering machines um so yeah if you wanted to leave a message you had to sit through like a three minute song to do it and he did that to discourage bill collectors say i'm never calling this person ever (laughs) i know right you had to really really have something to say to sit through a three-minute song (laughs) to do it so uh moving on uh the robotech ip has found a new home and uh strange machine games will be putting out uh, robotech macross saga role-playing game and, uh, yeah, that did not take long for that to come back out. And, I, you know, that's from Palladium. I wonder if they're going to kickstart it or, or what. Oh, it actually says our license precludes us from using crowdfunding, so it will never be on Kickstarter. Because, you know, the last role-playing, the last Robotech thing had, was such a screw-up on um, Kickstarter. Yeah. Good to see it found a found a home. I just hope somebody makes some more of those nice miniatures. So uh, I guess wrapping up, Gen Con starts this week. I'm very sad I'm not there, but uh, next year hopefully I'll be there. Yeah, I'm gonna be following pretty closely just to see how the controversy shakes out. I mean, hopefully it's just a gaming convention and a lot of new things are announced and people get to play some cool demos and people buy way too many games and everyone has a good time and it it just ends there that's what i'm hoping depending depending on the amount of, of news i thought about maybe doing a show 
like next weekend, like next either late Sunday night or Monday yeah, night. Yeah, might not be a bad idea uh, just to a Gen Con wrap up, even though we're not there. We'll be able to, because there will definitely be news coming out of it, and we've been going longer on our podcast, so. It honestly just depends on how much, you know. If there's a lot of news, then it would be worth it. And see, that's the other thing is like last week's episode was like really long. I mean, what were we around um, three hours almost? Yeah, I think we um, talked a couple hours and had maybe a what a forty-five minute interview in there, and I think we're probably looking about the same tonight. Yeah, yeah, mm-hmm. it's it's about that. And I'm just curious from you guys, like, what do you think? What is that? Is that okay? Do you like this long podcast? Because, I mean, I think when we started out, we were doing, like, every other weekend. Every other week, we are shooting for about an hour, and now we've gone, you know, kind of further. And so it's just, I don't know. I, I, I don't. And, I yeah, I'd love some customer feedback. I really, really would. It's like, are we going too long, not long enough? Because I know, like, when I look at, like, the downloads, it honestly... It takes people about two weeks to honestly like re- uh, listen to our podcast. I would say, um, just in the sense of like it just going, you know, because um, I just constantly over two weeks I see um, downloads go up, you know, and, and that's really neat. Uh, but yeah, I mean, I have no idea, man. I, I don't. I don't know what you guys want. Do you want more, less, you know, whatever? I will say our most popular episode was 104, which was the uh, the NWS interview, the Napoleonic mm. guy. Yeah, it, it was the most yeah. popular one. <laughs> so um, Yeah, if you guys want me to talk but, more about ASL, let me know. <laughs> I mean, it's yeah. I, I'd I'd love to know. I'd love some feedback. Uh, of course, the second most popular episode was the last one, and um, yeah, and it's, it's just. I'm sure Volko me. sure helped with that one. <laughs> yeah, it did, but it 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 took some time to to kind of like run up there. And I know I've done. I did Facebook advertising. I spent like I think I spent. Um, which is really, really neat when you try to do a, a Facebook advertising um, campaign, quote-unquote. They're like, the the default setting is like a $5,000 budget. And I'm like, no, let me slide that down to, I'm willing to spend like, let's try $100 or something. And I think I ended up spending like $14 is all I got out of it, you know, to get the reach and uh, honestly, I don't think I have a little Facebook page because you have to to do advertising with Facebook for Chance of Gaming. But I don't think anybody that speaks English has actually liked it. <laughs> it's always people from like the Mediterranean or, or wherever Southeast Asia that like it. And so, yeah, I don't know. And so I like I look at my statistics, you know, we're kind of because you could target it. You could be like, well, I want people from South America or Canada or wherever. And, uh, yeah, we're basically in the U.S. and uh, Great Britain. We're doing pretty well on Twitter. We are on track to probably hit about 500 uh, followers this week. Seems like, you know, there's five new people at least every day. Uh, it's, it's neat. So it's like, obviously, you guys like us enough, but I would just, you know, within reason, I would kind of like to conform to what you might want us to do or if we're just doing fine let us know that too just like don't don't fucking change anything and we'll we'll just call it a day well that'll be fine 
but I'm just curious. It's like, well, is it okay that we're going three hours? Would you prefer we go at an hour? Because I could chop things up, you know. We could have taken the, the Volca interview and the last... I mean, we could have taken the last podcast and chopped it in half if we wanted to. Uh, but I don't know. I'm just curious, you know. What do you guys want? Let us know. We're Chance of Gaming at Gmail or at Twitter. You know, it's it's all right there. <laughs> But, uh, yeah, we hope you enjoyed the Jamie Stegmeyer interview. I know we enjoyed uh, interviewing him. I have a couple of more irons in the fire to interview stuff, including uh, one from an upcoming Kickstarter, which will kickstart in September. My target is to interview them in a couple weeks and then interview them again the week that their Kickstarter launches. And uh, it's called Breach Storm, and uh, I noticed it via Facebook advertising. And it looks to be a pretty cool miniature thing. And I think they're in the U.S., which is always a bonus for those of us um, in the U.S. Instead of having to like look at all the cool stuff coming in across the pond. But, uh, yeah. So just let us know. Other than that, I guess we'll say goodnight. Goodnight. <laughs> I, can, I can edit that. I can fix it. We say goodnight. Rich. Goodnight, everybody. Good night, yeah.